It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. What's up, guys? I am really excited for today's episode with the former covert CIA intelligence officer, Andrew Bustamante. Andrew is a master of human psychology and emotional management, and we got into a litany of fascinating and useful topics around spy hacks that everyday people can use in business and life. In today's episode, he's exposing espionage secrets and tricks of the trade that he learned playing the life and death game of being a literal undercover spy. We talk about why humans are laughably predictable and how you can use that to your advantage in assessing those around you and getting people to do what you want, as well as why trauma turns some people into high achievers and leads others to self-destruct. Andrew reveals the three layers that everyone has to their life and how to get past people's defenses and into their secret life where they hide their true personality. We also get into his take on the coming new world order, what a bloodless war looks like, and how vulnerable a highly distracted America really is. It will have you rethinking how to safeguard yourself over the next 10 years. Guys, this conversation was utterly fascinating. And if you want more conversations like this, make sure you're following the show so you never miss an episode and are the first to know when new episodes are released. It's the best way to support the podcast so that we can help more people just like you reach their true potential and be legendary. I'm Tom Bilyeu, and welcome to Impact Theory. I actually want to start with a quote of yours. So for anybody that doesn't know, you're a former CIA legitimate spy, which is crazy. (laughs) And the reason I find that interesting is because you would have to be a master of psychology, your own and Mm -hmm. others. And this also gets into where we are in the world right now. I've heard you say that we are potentially already in the beginnings of World War III, which hits a little too close to home in terms Mm -hmm. of how I view what's going on. But here's a quote. The core element of being able to control a relationship is understanding the pink matter truth of feelings. What all people feel becomes their point of view on what reality is. So when you understand it and you learn how to manipulate how people feel, then you can essentially direct them to feel any way you want them to feel. Woof. I mean, I sound like a sick bastard sometimes, man. <laughs> Hearing my own words back to me, well, I'm like, oh, what kind of evil person came up with that idea? I'll assume that we're going to use these for good, <laughs> both as a screenwriter and as an entrepreneur, the idea of being able to take somebody's perspective mm-hmm. to actually think like they think is really important. So the, that, the idea that you capture in that quote is what I call frame of reference. Now, in my marriage, the biggest arguments that I have with my wife are always where I'm, I'll be saying to her, I'm not able to penetrate your frame of reference. Mm. And people feel a certain way. They see the world a certain mm. way. And if you can't get inside that, then you're in trouble. And so what I like about the quote is basically what I'm taking from that is if you can see their perspective, the, the elements that cobble it together that make them feel the things that they feel, 
then you can steer that relationship. Now, again, I'll assume we're steering it for good for the purposes of this conversation, but I do really want to understand more about that. One, how do you take somebody's perspective? Mm. How do you build something where you can reasonably, you're not going to be able to mind read, but you can reasonably understand where they're coming from? The first big thing that you hit on, uh, and I'm actually going to, I'm going to tweak what you said. It's not about getting into people's perspective. Most people don't have perspective. The average person has no perspective. They live in a world of perception, mm. how they perceive the world around them. Most individuals, at least that's what we learn at CIA, individuals live with a frame of reference around themselves. They're the center of the movie. They're the star of the show. They're the center of the universe. That is an inherently human thing to do because humans in our evolutionary process and the pink matter that is our brains, we're always worried about survival. We've never outgrown that. The technological development and the technological evolution of the world has happened exponentially faster than the human involvement, the human evolution of the world. So while you and I are sitting here in 2023, we, our brains work in essentially the same way as they worked in 1823, but the world around us is extremely different. We don't need to worry about survival anymore. Now we're supposed to be worrying about how to thrive, how to meet our objectives, how to meet our goals. If you think about it, humans just 200 years ago, humans had to worry about how do I make it to the next day? How do I just survive? They were always focused on the here and now and how do I make it work today so I can live again tomorrow? Mm -hmm. You and I don't worry about how to make it through today. Most people are thinking about what am I going to do this weekend? What am I going to do next week? When is my upcoming vacation? We don't worry about the here and now. But the brain is still wired to live first and foremost in this survival mindset, the survival process. So the pink matter that exists in your brain and mine and everybody around us is still very much focused on the self as the most important element. And because of that, it views everything around its, everything around the environment and around the individual through a lens of perception. What I perceive is real to me. To hell with what you perceive. Mm. What I perceive is the truth. My stepdad used to lecture me about perception is reality. Perception is reality, Andrew. Perception is reality. And I disagreed with him from the time I was 12 years old. I was like, no, dad, reality is reality. If I perceive a car coming down the road and it is in line to hit me, if I perceive that it's not going to hit me, it doesn't make a difference, right? Reality is reality. What CIA taught me was a better way of explaining what reality actually is. And reality is that 98% of human beings are trapped in their own perception. So the 2% that live in the real world that have perspective, they are able to manipulate the perception of everybody else. Mm. Okay. So when you were in training, did you have to, like, are there um, like five bullet points or whatever that you begin to go, okay, people are, they're in survival mode. Um, they're looking at the world through their own eyes. They have fears. Like, is, is there a framework by which you begin to understand the other person? Yes, uh, there is. It doesn't really boil down to five bullet points, but it does boil down to essentially like a handful of short lectures, mm. right? But walk me through it. So here's, 
here's how I imagine you. I don't know if this is real or not, but the very first thing I wrote down when I started researching you is how the hell do you manage your own anxiety when you're in spy mode mm. and you can't give yourself away, but you have to figure something out about that person. So I imagine you walk up to them, whatever that, you know, framework is the rubric that you're determining who they are by, I imagine it kicks in right away. Mm. How do you start categorizing them when you first walk up? So when you first walk up to somebody, you've got to keep in mind that nobody is what they appear to be. Nobody. Every, every human being has three lives. It's what we're taught. Ooh, three lives. There's a uh, public life, a secret life, and a uh, private life, right? So the order is public life, private life, secret life. The public life is what we're all presenting to each other. It's what we want to appear as in public right? You want to look cool and suave and handsome and you want to sound nice and you want to surround yourself with nice things because that's what you want the public to perceive about you. Mm. It may not be real, but it doesn't have to be real. If they perceive it to be true, then you have won because you have just perceived, you have just manipulated their perception. Mm. That's why broke ass high school and college kids will still wear nice name brand stuff. So they don't, they, they don't look like they're broke ass students, mm. right? I was one of those students, so I remember. Then you've got your private life. Now your private life is what your closest confidants know about you. So what your wife might know about you, what your close friends know about you, what your parents know about you. So publicly, nobody knows my feet smell bad. Privately, my wife knows my feet smell bad, right? But I'm never going to make that part of my public persona because it goes against what I'm trying to display as an mm. image. So here you've got these two lives. When you meet a stranger, they're presenting their public life. Always. Most of your connections, most of your friends, unless they are in the private life, they are all in the public life. Your coworkers, your customers, these are all people who you are dealing with, you're interacting with on a public life to public life level. We haven't even talked about the secret life, right? The secret life is the life that you don't share with anyone. It's that place where your darkest thoughts your biggest uh, vulnerabilities, it's where they live and convince you every day not to share them with your spouse, mm. not to share them with your parents, the things that make you feel horrible about yourself, the things that you, that you wonder if they're really true, but you're afraid to even ask the question because what would they think? They the public life, they the private life. What, how would people judge me? We all have a secret life too. For some people, secret life is big. Mm. For some people, secret life is quite small. But you've got these three lives. So when I approach somebody in spy mode or in business mode or in social mode, I know I'm dealing with a public life first. So are you trying to peel beneath that? Sometimes. Like in spy mode. In, like, in spy mode? I'm sorry. No, 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 please. In, this is so interesting to the average person. You have no idea. Like this is like movie shit. In, so. in spy mode, you have two objectives. Objective number one is to get into someone's private life as quickly as possible. Because if you're not, unless you're in someone's private life, you'll never get into their secret life. Mm. Objective number two, once you're in private life, is to become one of the few people that will ever penetrate their secret life. And there's only one reason why you wanna penetrate someone's secret life. Because once you're there, you never leave. Once someone has trusted you with a secret life secret, they're their fealty to you, their loyalty to you is beyond question forever mm. because they believe that you have earned that right to their secret life. They believe that you two are inherently connected. 
star-crossed lovers, soul matches. They rationalize it however they need to rationalize it. But essentially, all they did is they just, in a moment of vulnerability, they let you into one of their deepest, darkest secrets. So they have been leveraged, like debt. They have been leveraged now, so their deepest, darkest secret hinges on you keeping it a secret. And that is interpreted as loyalty. They interpret that as this is the most trusted confidant. This is my most trusted lieutenant. This person gets me. This person understands me. I need to be, I need to have, I need to do life with this person. So when you're a spy and you get into someone's secret life, that means you get all the secrets. If they're a general in a nuclear program in a hostile country, you can just ask them a question. Hey, who, who are your missiles pointed at? What's the temperature that you guys use or how often do you enrich your uranium? What's your primary source of uranium? You can ask them anything because they don't even care about that. Mm. That's all stuff that they basically have in their private life. You're in their secret life. That stuff's yours. They'll just give it to you. The stuff they really care about is I'm really not happy. I'm, I'm, I'm trapped in this marriage that was arranged by my parents. And what I really like is this kinky thing with this whatever that's going to get me, you know, killed in my own country. Mm. But I can tell you about it. So how do you, how do you get into that mode? I'm guessing you have to understand something about them first. So you have to know what makes them tick. You have to understand what's going to make them suspicious. What's going to trip them up. Are those like generally true mm. or do you have to tailor them to that specific person? They, you come in to any operation against a human being. So human intelligence is called human human operations, human intelligence operations. Mm. Whenever you come into a human operation, you're using a generalized dossier of the target set. So if I know I'm talking to an Asian person who has traveled to Europe, maybe educated in Europe, uh, their parents are well-to-do, they live in China, but they were born in Cambodia, you can kind of come up with a general sense of the person. Walk me through that though. So are you thinking, okay, if you're born in Chinese culture, it's more collective in nature. So you probably feel a tremendous sense of pressure from your family. And so how do I leverage that? Or no, you have a certain reaction to authority. And if I can position myself like, like, are you thinking like that? You are exactly, that's exactly how you're thinking. So there's a couple of things to keep in mind. So first is that there's three developmental stages to the human brain. There's three developmental stages to the human brain. There's from birth to seven years old. From birth to seven years old, we're all sponges. Mm. We don't differentiate between true and untrue information. There's just information, right? This is one of the reasons why my son, when he was four, just fell head over heels in love with his grandpa. His grandpa's wrong pretty much all the time. <laughs> he just lies. He tells stories that, that never happened. He just makes stuff up, right? Oh, the reason this is happening is because of that. And I'm like, no, that's, that's not true at all. My four-year-old son doesn't care. Or when he was four, he didn't care. But ba Babu, who he calls his grandpa Babu, Babu tells the best stories. So now my son is 10. He has left that first developmental stage. But because of those years spent with his grandfather, he is now predisposed to believe his grandfather. Mm -hmm. The second developmental stage happens from seven to 13. In that period of time, you can start to differentiate true and untrue information. But you choose which information you want to give more value to. So you're still absorbing it. You still retain it, but you might have a preference for one information, for one bit of information or the other, right? So now this is the place where it's like, yeah, I know I ate broccoli once and it wasn't terrible, but I don't really want to eat it anymore. 
before that, you're just like, and if you, if you give a four-year-old broccoli, they'll put it in their mouth. Mm. So seven to 13, people start to have a preference for the information, but they still absorb it all. Puberty from 13 to 25, nobody thinks about this. Puberty lasts until you are 25 years old. That period of time cognitively is characterized by the fact that you resist some forms of information. So now you actually have the cognitive capacity to hear something and reject it Mm -hmm. and not even let it come into your brain at all. So seven to 13, you hear it, you retain it, whether you like it or not. Zero to seven, everything comes in. 13 to 25, you're actually rejecting information. So when we create a dossier on somebody, we're looking at those first 25 years. Where did they spend the first seven years? Oh, they spent it in China. Lots of stuff we can ask. We can high probability assume a number of things because they spent the first seven years in China. Oh, they spent their first seven years in Alabama. They've spent their first seven years in, in New York, New York. They spent their first seven years in Canada. Lots of stuff you can pull from the foundation of how they were programmed. Seven to 13, they did this. Okay. So they were exposed in some places like Saudi Arabia, uh, North Korea, Turkey, uh, Syria. You can assume that some pieces of information they were just never exposed to, right? They were predominantly exposed to one style of information. And if they were given other information, they may have absorbed or they would have absorbed it, but the chances are they were never exposed to it. Mm. And then you look at them from their puberty years, 13 to 25. Where were they? What were they doing? What college did they go to? What high school did they go to? What countries were they in? Because now you know, well, what would they have been exposed to? What would they have rejected based on their predisposition to these other formative years? And now you're talking to them in their 35 or 45. The, after 25, neuroplasticity is still a thing for the entirety of your life, meaning your brain can always learn something new but your worldview has been set by 25. So unless something comes in and challenges your worldview and you give it permission to challenge your worldview, you're never going to change the way you think after the age of 25. Mm. So we can largely assume that every person that we're talking to, especially if they're government engineer, super secret squirrel stuff, they probably haven't been challenging their worldview since the time that they were 25. So now we have a we have these different levels that we can use to make probabilistic assumptions about how they think and what they believe. When you have that dossier, that generalized dossier, then you can go into a more granular dossier about what they drink, what they eat, who they hang out with, are they cheating on their spouse, how often do they use their phone, all the really nitty-gritty detail stuff to create a picture of how you want to talk to this person. Mm. So that your first introductory line essentially predisposes them to want to talk to you for the entire conversation. And that's so interesting. So do you, did you take classes on like, okay, if you grew up in uh, an American large city, here are going to be, you know, some of the things you would have taken in by the time you're 13. Or if you grew up in the Middle East, then it's, you know, you're going to be probably Islamic culture here, like the main things that you're going to need to know about somebody like that. So at CIA, it's organized according to disciplines. So they do a really good job of making sure that people are compartmentalized in terms of their skill sets so that no one person can do everything. And they also capture the efficiency of scale by having some people be really good at one skill. So they can essentially like a, like an industrial revolution, uh, uh, what is it called? Uh, uh, assembly line. Mm. So 
somebody says we need to target nuclear engineers in Iran. And here is a list of and then a different person, a different discipline says, here's 12 nuclear engineers that travel outside of Iran that we think we can actually get in front of. And then they give those 12 to an, an, an analyst team. And now your analytical targeters create that generalized dossier. Mm. And then that those analytical targeters give it to human targeters who create the nitty gritty dossier. Those human targeters then give it to actual field officers or case officers and say, here are the 12 people. Here's everything we know about their background. Here's everything we know about them individually. Here's what we know about their pattern of life, where they hang out, what they like to order at their favorite restaurants and what days of the week they're going to be in those restaurants. Mm. And then they give it to the field officer. So the field officer can review the whole case and say, here's how I'm going to do this. Here's the day, the place. Here's my opening line. Here's where the conversation is going to go. We create our conversation map a map of how we expect the conversation to go with all of the different breakoff points where it might go awry and how we bring it back together. And then we go and we execute and we execute what's known as a bump or a cold introduction with a known target of interest. And a bump is your meet cute. It's where you're going to bump into them, I assume is where that comes from. From their perspective, yeah, you're just bumping into them. Yeah, yeah. Right? From their perception, mm. you're just same place, same time. And it's totally by happenstance because they're living in their world. If they actually lived outside of their world, they would realize an entire team of people just orchestrated this singular moment mm. where I say exactly the right thing to you at exactly the right time to make the conversation continue. Jesus. Are humans laughably predictable? Laughably predictable. That's so Even I am laughably predictable, man. Yeah. Like it's you, you and your team invited me here knowing with high confidence how I was going to react, what I was going to mm. say, I'm predictable. We all are. It's something that makes us human. It's just how you use another human's predictability that kind of defines whether you're typecast as hero or villain. Mm. So rough swags, how many like personality types do we break into? There's science that basically I'm, I lean heavily on the Myers-Briggs type indicator. Mm. It's what I was taught at the agency. It's what I've seen work in the field. So that's what I lean on. And they break people into 16 category types. Would that be in your dossier? That would be in your dossier. Your Myers-Briggs yeah. would be in the estimated yeah. Myers-Briggs type indicator for you would be in your dossier. Whoa. The field officer actually meets you would then be able to tweak it further. Mm. Because again, public life, private life, yeah, secret yeah. life. You might, we might assume that you're an introvert and then I meet you and you seem to act very extroverted. So now are you the introvert that we assumed or are you the extrovert that you present yourself to be? Mm. Only way we're going to find out is by continued consistent experience with you over time, right? If I can get into your private life and especially if I can get into your secret life, then I'll know. Then I'll know whether you're introverted or extroverted, mm. whether you're just playing an extroverted role for the societal opinion of you, right? Uh, but yeah, it takes time. So that would be in your dossier. So I would say roughly 16 types, but then I would also double that because every type is going to have the, the true personality of who they actually are versus that public life personality of who they're trying to present themselves to be. And because each type, each of those 16 personality types are predisposed to a certain type of behavior publicly, they're also predisposed to a certain type of behavior privately. So how different would their Myers-Briggs be from, so they're presenting themselves as one personality type, but in reality, not reality, in secret life, they're a different personality type. Would those often be 
very divergent? Sometimes. not So sometimes they're very divergent. It really depends on the individual. Let me give you an example, right? When we think about personalities, let's talk through a lens of resources, right? Individual resources. So human beings, we're taught that human beings only have three resources that matter. There's time, energy, and money. That's it. Every other resource boils down to one of those three resources, time, energy, and money. For you to accomplish anything, it takes a certain balance of time, energy, and money. So when it comes time for you or I to live our public life, we go to a restaurant, we go to a, I was just at Megacon, a big comic book conference, right? I was there with my kids and my wife. It takes a certain amount of money to buy the ticket money to take to invest in the hotel room and everything else it takes a certain amount of energy to put up with all those people and the lines and your kids going crazy for megacon and your wife trying to get in line to meet beverly crusher right (laughs) from star trek so there's a certain amount of energy that goes into it and then of course there's a time element when you meet with somebody you have to understand how their three uh those three resources are being used at any given time. So if you meet somebody at the beginning of the day, they're most likely fully resourced. Mm. You meet somebody at the end of the day, the gas tanks are at different levels. Energy might be lower. Time is probably running on empty. Uh, money might be might be safe. That's It helps to know the financial status of your client or your target, right? So it, you have to understand how people's resources are different. The more a person's resources are depleted, the closer they get to their true Myers-Briggs personality. That is interesting. When they're fully resourced, they can fake it. (laughs) They can act extroverted. They can take extra time to think something through. They can be non-judgmental. But when they're tapped, when the end of the day comes and they're fried, that's when you see who they really are. Mm. So a big part of the process of bringing someone from public life to secret life is to drain them of their resources systematically so that you can see who they really are because it's when they're in that low point that you can essentially replicate or mirror their core personality back to them and then they let you into that secret life they're not you're not going to let someone into your secret life who's different than you so you have to mirror back to them what you believe their true personality to be and then they're like if you like that let me show you this other thing Dude, that's crazy. Okay, it's so it's not that different, man, than what we what you and I just did off camera when we were talking about comics. Oh, 100%. Were you folding your arms on purpose? Uh, no. Cuz at one point I noticed we both had our arms folded and I was like, "Okay, are we mirroring right now? <laughs> like what are we doing?" Yeah. No, I was not I was not mirroring you there. I was not mirroring you there. Um I was I'm just a little bit cold sometimes mm-hmm. in uh in these studios, but uh, the fact that we connected on a genuine common interest. Mm. And then from there, the, I don't know if you noticed how quickly the conversation turned into very private conversation, mm. right? And this was me predictably responding to your questions. You were the one in control of that conversation. Why did you homeschool your kids? Why do you do this? Why did you leave agent? Like you mm. were asking the questions. I'm responding. You're the one in control. Questions are always being asked by the person in control of the conversation. I was just responding in a predictable way because we had just connected over something that made me bring you into my private life. Mm. 
Man, this is really useful. So when I think about this, obviously, again, uh, I understand how quickly this stuff can be nefarious, but I also understand how this can be really useful in my marriage, first of all, yep. like understanding my wife, being able to take her perspective, understanding her perceptions. Uh, that stuff is incredibly, yeah. incredibly helpful. And the times where I'm unable to pierce her um, her frame of reference in my language, I'm like, oh, we're derailing because I can't, I can't get you to see that you have a frame of reference mm -hmm. on this. And I often use the David Foster Wallace quote of this is water. It's mm -hmm. like your frame of reference is so ever-present. You, you don't even realize you have one. And so the thought of there being a dossier on me somewhere that's like got there, you know, an estimate of my Myers-Briggs and that for sure, like, so I think of it not as I present a fake version, mm. but there are, I think of my personality in slices. And so every slice that I present to people is real, but I'm only going to show my wife all of my slices. Mm. To your point that consistency is the most difficult thing, um, I I just wouldn't be able to be like with my wife as long as I've been with my own, been together 22 years. I wouldn't be able to be fake for that long. Right. Like at some point, the jig is gonna be up. You're right. gonna like slip up. And so that, like my wife sees all of my slices. Everybody else sees some version thereof. And what's interesting is as you understand more and more of somebody's slices, two things happen. You can, uh, you can begin to predict their behavior mm -hmm. And I'm obsessed with the human brain is a prediction engine. Mm -hmm. And my whole thing, like we're, we're living through a moment where Thomas Sowell has the perfect quote to sum it up. And people have, this is a paraphrase, but people have exchanged what worked for what sounds good. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to your idea of, well, you can say that a truck's not heading towards you, but if a truck is heading towards you, it's heading towards you. And so there is, there's what's really happening. And then there is your perception of what's happening. And in, in a desire to look at the world through a lens of just pure acceptance, no judgment, our prediction engines are breaking yeah. and we're no longer dealing with what I'll call as close to ground truth as you can get. You and I may disagree a little bit on how much of the world is objectively true. Physics is true. Hmm. But like, we don't even understand physics fully. Right. And we're still able to do like incredible shit. Right. So like we're, we are existing at some layer of abstraction. All right, I'll rein this back in because I could really <laughs> derail on that. Uh, but in my marriage, so my ability to predict the outcome of my behaviors as they echo back off of my wife or just my ability to predict her native reaction or actions on something is extraordinarily helpful but I do a lot of this intuitively. And so hearing it like broken out, like I don't even know my wife's Myers-Briggs. Mm, um, I know my own, but even I don't even remember what they mean anymore. I did it so long ago. Um, when you think about this stuff, and I know you work with corporate clients, how, how much do you really try to get people to solidify this? And how much of it is just people play by ear? When it comes to how I teach others, I know that it's like a, you called me a master earlier, and I am not a master. I think the, the more you learn about something, the more you become an expert in something, the more you realize how much there is to learn. Mm. So I do not consider myself a master of human psychology or a master of human behavior. I don't consider myself a master really of anything except being a masterful student of continuing to learn more maybe. So when I teach a client, my objective as a service provider 
is to bring them maximum proficiency in the minimum amount of time. They don't need to learn how to use this 12 different ways. They hired me for one specific purpose. What I know, being a business owner, is that if you can meet someone's expectation once, they'll come back and they'll give you a second chance to meet a different expectation. So when a corporate client comes to me and says, I want to learn how to use these skills in my human recruiting process, right? My, my human resource process, then let's do it, right? I don't tell, I don't make, I don't distract them by telling them how to incentivize their high performers. I don't distract them by telling them how to improve their relationship. I don't distract them by telling them how to improve themselves. You want to use this skill in your human resource sourcing and staffing. Here's how we do it, right? And then when they have success doing that, that's when they come back and they're like, that was amazing. How else can I use this? Or where else can I use that? Or here's my next problem. My C-suite doesn't get along. How do I get my C-suite to get along? How do I increase communication between my program management team and my budget and finance team, right? Now they bring you specific problems and you solve those specific problems. That's how I end up teaching it because people understand their problems. People don't necessarily have the consistency or the self-discipline it takes to master multiple areas of a certain skill. Mm. It's not a luxury many of us have. Is there a question, so going back to your HR example, do you think there are universal questions that will prompt people to reveal themselves? In general would be my ideal, but we can limit it to HR if we have to. So I would, my instinct is to say yes, but I'd have to think through what those questions would be and right, how we I'll would ask them. buy you time to think about it. Here's the one that I use <laughs> in interviews because this is so, culture is everything to me. Like mm. you might be really smart, but if you're not a good cultural fit, then we have a problem. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to what I was talking about. We're living through a cultural moment where people go, they're, they're not, um, they are so trying not to upset or offend anybody that they don't realize that people are predictable, like you were saying, that they fall into certain categories. Boys and girls is the easiest one for me as somebody who writes comics. Like I just had mm. to realize, oh, 12 year old boys are into this, 12 year old girls are into this and they are wildly divergent yeah. desires. And look, that's on average, it's not everybody. And of course there are gonna be some 12 year old boys that prefer the girls comics and vice versa. Um, but in an interview, the question that I ask is, when was the last time you were offended? Okay. Now that matters to me a lot. What are you hoping to discover from that question? I am trying to figure out what their, um, if they have thick skin and very specifically, what was it that triggered you? Because that to me gets me their frame of reference because I think everybody's offended by something. Mm -hmm. And the question is what? And if that, if what you give me is something small, then I know, okay, there's no way. Like you're gonna, in a business where it's it's just data, like it's either working or it's not. We're not competing against each other. We're competing against the market and competitors. And this is, running a business is the, the closest that most of us will come to a quote unquote life and death situation where you can literally go out of business. Nobody has a job. The company is now dead. Mm. Uh, and as the person you know, that started the company, that's like real yeah. stuff. Like that's really high stress. And so I need to know if in that dogfight, if I'm going to have to worry about overly worry about mm -hmm. how I say things. It's a fair question. Um, I would, now that you've given me time to stall and, and, and think through it, I would start with a question that has more to do with how they process information. I would start with a question like, how would you plan your ideal vacation? That is a good universal question for me because it's gonna tell you how they process information, 
how quickly they responded to tasking, um, the time and resource demands that will go into any future tasking you give them while they're on the job. Um, and the reason I come up with that is there's a, there's an exercise at CIA that they put us through called the four temperaments. And they break these four temperaments down into four different animal categories, basically. So the four animal categories are lions, foxes, cheetahs, and bears. Interesting. Right. Tell me more. So your lions are people who have a temperament to organize. Your foxes are people who have a temperament to create ideas, to create. Your cheetahs are people who have a temperament to take action. And your bears are people who have a temperament to build relationships. Hmm. So why those animals? None of those seem self-evident to me. I don't know Other why. than the cheetah. The fox is also relatively yeah, clever, fair. right? I don't know why. Um, I was just taught and I just do what fair. I'm told. Yep, yep. <laughs> so what ends up happening is you ask in an, in a High performance team, a high performance team is a four block team, right? If you can imagine a square with four blocks inside it, and each of those blocks has, is, rep, is representative of one of those animal temperaments. Mm. You need each of them in a high performing team. You can have a good team that doesn't have all four, but if you want a truly high performance team, you need all four present. Somebody to organize, someone to create ideas, someone to build the relationships, someone to execute. When you are looking to source somebody into HR, you already know who you're looking for. We need bears. We need cheetahs. We need lions. We need foxes. You should already know because you can run the temperament of your existing staff. Mm. And if you want to build a high performance team, you need all four blocks present. So you just find the missing block and then you start sourcing for that. The questions that you want to ask, you want to ask questions that disarm the person interviewing. Because guess what? Every person you interview is in what stage of their life? Or they're in what of their oh, three very public public life. I need this job. I want this job. I'm super, ex- I'm prepared for this job, mm-hmm. right? I'm prepared for this interview, public life. So you need to disarm them. If you're going to find your way into their private life, if you want to see how they actually behave, you can't ask them questions about the job. You also can't ask them questions that go against HR policy, uh, you know, federal policy about what you do in an interview. Mm-hmm. So you have to ask these elicitation questions, these parallel questions, and a question like, how would you plan your perfect vacation is completely disarming to somebody. So if they say, well, the first thing I would do is I would make a list of all the places I want to go and how much it costs to be there and you know what the high season and low season is. Now you know you're talking to a lion. Lions want to organize, right? If you talk to somebody, what's your ideal vacation? Oh man, I'm just going to jump on the next plane to Fiji. You know, you're talking to a cheetah. Mm. Cheetah just wants to take action. What the hell are you going to do when you get to Fiji? I have no idea, but I'm on the next plane, right? If you ask somebody what they're going to do for their ideal vacation and they come back and they're like, you know, I've thought about this a lot and I'm either going to Antarctica or I'm going to Africa or I'm going to, you know, Saudi Arabia because there's all this cool stuff going on in all three places and they've got fantastic reviews. You know, you're talking to a fox Mm. because a fox is full of ideas. And if you ask somebody, where are you going on your perfect vacation? I'm going to go anywhere my husband wants to go. I'll go wherever my best friend takes me. You know, you're talking to a bear. It's all about the relationship with the bear. Nothing else matters. Right. So when you ask a one-off question, you disarm the person. You already know they're coming in armed up because they're in their public life. Mm. So you've got to disarm them to get into their private life. And then you need to ask something that's going to give you some insight into how they're going to react on the job. I don't disagree with your question about asking somebody the last time they were offended, but you run the risk of making an assumption that isn't accurate because you're asking them about something that, that they are publicly 
their public life is going to influence their answer significantly because mm. they know they're trying to get a job. Yeah, so yeah. they might say, ooh, well, uh, I don't really want to admit that I was offended when my son, you know, ate the last bowl of Cheerios because that's going to sound childish. <laughs> so I'm going to say something else instead. What yeah. can I say that's really smart? Yeah, yes, I hear all of that. And I haven't gotten any of the really cool like Cheerio answers, <laughs> but Pete... One, I never asked that question in the beginning. So we're going to be deep in the interview by the time I pull that one out. Uh, but when people speak, they cannot help but reveal themselves. Mm -hmm. And so no matter what lie they're trying to tell, like even the fact that they stumble and hem and haw is like already information. Now, maybe it's because they're not easily offended. And so they're like, Jesus, wow, I really have to think about that. Um, but usually within the context of the interview, it becomes pretty apparent by the time we get to that question, whether they're stalling to buy time, trying to come up with something, but then other times, and I don't know if people just are, they're so caught off guard mm. that they'll give you a real answer. And it's like, whoa, uh, it, yeah, it's pretty, pretty revelatory. The one that I do along the lines of what's your vacation is describe your closet. How do you organize your closet mm. or what does your closet look like right now? Don't give me your ideal closet. I want to know what does your closet actually look like? <laughs> uh, and that will get like, if I need somebody that's super detail oriented and they're like, okay, my closet is organized by color or designer, or it's like, okay, cool. Like this is somebody that really like, there's a method to the madness, mm. um, that can be pretty useful. Now, bringing this into the world of relationships, you and your wife both have a CIA background. Right. She wasn't an operative though. So I don't know if you guys are like constantly trying to evaluate each other, or like take each other into the perfect setting. But how do you, um, how do you guys deploy these knowing that they are, you have to have psychological um, awareness, savvy to, in my opinion, have a high functioning marriage. How much of this do you bring into your relationship? We bring a lot of it in. Uh, it it's, an, it's silly to not bring it in. We were both, we both joined CIA because we love this stuff. We independently joined the agency. We independently were vetted, recruited, trained, and brought in. We didn't meet each other until we were in complementary fields inside CIA, right? And then after meeting each other, after building a relationship, after falling in love, after getting married, then CIA turned us into a tandem operational couple because it was just the perfect cover. Two, mm. two CIA officers married in real life can basically operate anywhere with very little outside support. Mm. So that was, that was our nexus. That's where we were kind of forged in fire. Um, now, as business owners, because my wife is a co-owner of the business, and parents and spouses outside of CIA, we really lean heavily on the tools and the language that CIA gave us to understand human psychology. Probably the most impactful piece of everything they gave us that plays into our marriage, our relationship now. I was telling you about the three different developmental periods, right? Zero to seven, seven to 13, 13 to 25 and, and over. We have this concept at CIA that we call the thousand personalities. Every, everybody has a core personality that under-resourced drained of all, you know, additional, all excess time, money, and energy. This is who a person is. But then you have a thousand personalities that you can play depending on what the, like what the scale is of your time, energy, and money. So this idea of a thousand personalities has been incredibly valuable in marriage because it makes it so that you can be gracious and forgiving to any of the thousand personalities that present themselves at any time that you are also in one of your thousand personalities. 
And it really boils down to these for us, my wife and I, it boils down to these three developmental phases. Sometimes she's dealing with me and I am little Andy, Andy zero to seven sponge, Andy hurt child, Andy, you know, my father died before I was born. So sometimes she's talking to Andy who was raised by just his mom and his grandma. Mm. And when she's talking to that Andy, or when that is the Andy responding to some disaster in life or business, right? She can call it out. She can say, Hey, I'm not trying to hurt little Andy's feelings here. Right. I, I need to talk to adolescent Andy. I need to talk to puberty Andy. Right. Does and, that wind you up in the moment? Like, does that annoy you or are you like, oh, word, thank you? That's exactly what it is. Now, because we speak the same language, because I speak to her, I speak to her little Jihi, mm. right? My wife's name is Jihi. I speak to her little Jihi. I speak to her teenage Jihi. I speak to her grown up Jihi. I speak to her CIA Jihi. I speak to her mom Jihi. Mm. I speak to her wife Jihi. I speak to her business Jihi. That's... And, and now, we're, we're not trying to point fingers and trigger each other because we're not saying, Hey, you're being a child. We're saying, I need to speak to this personality, right? I'm having a problem. I need this problem solved. And the best person that I know to solve this problem is business Jihi, right? So I understand that you're in the middle of making a peanut butter sandwich. And I understand that you didn't get enough sleep last night. And I understand that you're really hoping that you get your bath later tonight. All of those things are valid. But for this five minute conversation, I need to talk to business Jihee, right? And she can do the same thing to me. That's really potent. Uh, it's interesting how we bring these different frames of reference. You can snap yourself into actually feeling differently. Like I can, I would never have used those words, mm. um, but I can snap myself out. Maybe that's not quite the word. I can wildly diminish my anxiety, which has always been my struggle by I'll say the phrase, remember who you are. Mm. And what I mean, I'm snapping myself into what you'd probably refer to as business Tom or entrepreneur Tom, where it's like, oh yeah, remember the things I've done, what I've accomplished, yeah. all the like mental faculties that I have at my disposal that for whatever reason right now, like don't feel accessible. <laughs> it's so weird it is. that I can shift into that and I can feel small and scared and all that. And then I just say that phrase and I'm like, my chin comes down, my brow furrows, and I'm like, oh, that's right. Like, I know who I am and what I can do. And so the thousand personalities, knowing that you're in one of these different ones. You are those other things too, though, brother. Like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not diminishing your, you know, remember who you are mantra. But I, I want to encourage you also not to diminish. You are all the other things too. You are still the zero to seven. You're still the childhood Tom. Is that useful somehow? Absolutely that, that's I useful. despise those moments. And that might be why the experience happened at all. And some part of that experience shaped who you are now. So there's a resource in those experiences. When you carte blanche reject them because you despise them, use a, a term like that. I'm sure there are things that happen between zero and seven that you don't despise. Oh, I'm, I didn't mean the age, only oh. that feeling of being anxious and oh, that feeling feeling sucks. too weak for something. Hate. Yeah. That feeling sucks, but we're talking about a feeling. Mm. We're not talking about a rational frame of reference, right? We're talking about a feeling. So as an example, in marriage, especially your spouse, because your spouse is the closest person to your secret life, perhaps your spouse is in your secret life, which would be awesome if you have your wife in your secret mm. life. My wife is very much in my secret life. Your spouse understands you at a very 
deep level if she's in your secret life or he's in your secret life. And sometimes they suspect that what they're dealing with is some sort of memory, trauma, behavior, conditioning that happened when you were a child, zero to seven. So they, they get the benefit of being able to call that out if that's what's happening or if they suspect that's what's happening when you engage in that kind of openness and say, this is what I was like as a kid. Mm. For me, I was always competing for attention, my mom's attention, because my mom was a single mom. She was working two jobs, sometimes three. She was going to school. I spent a lot of time with my grandma. All I wanted was mom, because what does every child under the age of seven want? Mom. They say they want dad sometimes, but they want mom. They want that nurturing, loving, maternal figure. And I didn't have that very often. So I learned very young that I had to compete to get mom's attention and that competing to get mom's negative attention was not a good way of doing it. So mm. acting out was not productive. Instead, I had to excel. I had to exceed. I had to be super helpful around the house. I had to be super independent. If I could make myself, if I could get up at six o'clock in the morning on Saturdays, I could watch my cartoons, pour a bowl of cereal, be awake and be alert and be fed by 6.30 in the morning when my mom woke up and she'd be like, Andrew, did you feed yourself? Good job. And what are you watching? And let me sit with you. And then I got mom's attention. So my wife knows that when I'm showing that attention seeking behavior to her, to clients, to whatever else, she knows that it's going to drain my resources very quickly. Mm. So she'll call it out. She'll be like, hey, is this little Andy trying to seek attention because he sees some sort of opportunity? Or is this business Andy cultivating a client with biz dev or whatever? And then I can look back and say, oh yeah, it's a great call girl. Like if I'm putting this much energy into a client, it better be the right client. Mm. If I'm putting this much energy into whatever, some the the neighborhood watch parent, then it better be for a good reason because I'm going to drain resources. And when I drain those resources, who's going to pay the penalty? My wife, my kids, my staff. Mm. So it's really useful to me to have her be able to communicate to me in those terms. And for me to understand that there are advantages that come from zero to seven, seven to 13. I mean, my worst years of my life were from 13 to 25. I was, I mean, those were hard, horrible years. Most people, those are hard, horrible years, right? Was there something specific? Uh, I, I was in the military. I should have never been in the military. Like ROTC? It's I was young. an Air Force Academy graduate. So, um, so 13 to 14, right when I was going into puberty, my dad was, my stepdad was a Vietnam vet mm. and was lived, we ran, he ran a very military household as it related to me, the stepson. So part of me was always prepared to go into the military because my dad told me, right? Mm. You're out of the house at 18. You're either going into the military, you're getting a job. You're not going to college because we don't have any money for you to go to college. So that was always my rubric, right? I'm going to get a job. And I'm, or I'm going to go into the military, but I don't have a home. April 18th, the day after I turn 18, I no longer have a home. And my dad made it very clear, like, this is how it's going to work. Mm. Were you still in high school? I was my senior year, 18, 18, I was going to, I was going to graduate in May and April was my birthday. So you didn't even get to finish high school. So I'm sure that they would have, I, I got to finish high school and, but I needed a plan. Right. Right. Like I had to demonstrate that I had a plan. It wasn't like I was going to graduate high school and be able to stay at home. Right. And I kind of knew that. So, you know, back up 16, 17, I'm making this plan for when I turn 18, because I've been conditioned by my stepdad since I was like 12, mm. you're out of the house at 18. 
and college is not an option. So I happened to find that a military school, the Air Force Academy, is a full ride scholarship to a university and it's also in the military. So what is little Andy, zero to seven Andy thinking? Well, maybe I'll make my stepdad happy if I go into the military. Maybe I can erase all of these years of pain and torment and trying to impress him if I just show him that we're the same. And I joined the military. Should not have joined the military. It just wasn't a good fit for me. It was a very, very difficult time. And from about 16 on, all I was doing was trying to qualify for the Air Force Academy, trying to you know, uh, demonstrate my military discipline and my military structure and submit to authority and everything else. You know, I was doing everything through a lens of, you know, trying to prove that I'm successful in this realm. That's what so many of us do without even realizing that we do it or why we do it. Mm. I, I wouldn't change any of it for the world because I now have those experiences to pull from as I make my own decisions now. But a lot of that came because I was able to make my own decisions. It was, it was me trying to fit into the rubric of following orders and being elite that took me to CIA. On my own volition, I don't know that that would have ever happened. Mm. So I have to look back at little Andy and teenage Andy and adolescent Andy and, and all the trauma and all the challenges that drove me through what, what I experienced because they contributed to why CIA recruited me. Yeah. You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off, and that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com impact and use code impact to choose your free-for-a-year offer plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're gonna have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash impact theory. 
It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. Do you think that they contributed to why you're a high achiever? Absolutely. So another one of the first lessons that you get at CIA, at least in CIA field operations, one of the first lessons they tell you is that there's a strong connection, an empirical connection between childhood trauma and high achievement. That the science is out there. I've looked it up on my own. The, the connection is extraordinary that people who, who experience the right amount of childhood trauma, the right amount being enough that you had to prove something but not so much that you had to adopt external coping mechanisms, right? Whoa. Well said, like drugs. Correct. Drugs, uh, uh, addictions to pornography, mm. uh, substance abuse, uh, sub submitting yourself to the authority of others, right? Like there's a certain amount of trauma that's the right amount of trauma that turns you into this high achiever. You always have to win something because you're trying to win favor, win attention, win rewards, win glory, win something. So you're always achieving, you're always driving yourself towards something, but it's not because you were born with drive. Mm. It's because some part of your childhood, those formative years taught you that by achieving, you will be rewarded. So that becomes the inherent thought by achieving, I will be rewarded. So now all of a sudden you project that onto a 40 year old, a 50 year old, a 25 year old, they're going to have all the drive in the world mm -hmm. because they believe they will be rewarded. This is so fascinating. So I love people that have kids, even though I've chosen a different path. How are you going to play this with your kids? Like, are you, yep, you turned 18, got to go or something completely different? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I have to admit that I haven't got it figured out yet. I don't, I don't have it figured out yet. 10 years old already. I know. And the, and the days just keep on rolling. There are certain things that I've, I've chosen to value. And my wife and I have these, these conversations pretty often. Legacy is extremely important to me. The whole reason, really? the whole reason I'm running Define a business. legacy, please. So for me, legacy is the legacy of how my family, how my children and my children's children remember me and remember my contributions to the family. Okay. I'm not, I'm not worried about building wealth. Yeah, It'd yeah, be great to cool. build wealth. But the, the truth is when I look back, and this is very much how I was raised, right? I don't even know my father. Did and he I, die? He, he was murdered. He was murdered. Oh God. Yeah. He was killed in a violent crime, but Whoa. I was, I was less than a year old. Still, Jesus I know nothing Christ. about it. Yeah. 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 So my father was killed in a violent crime. I never knew him. My stepdad came into my life when I was four and became my stepdad when I was five. So I never knew my father. My stepdad was not a man that I had a close relationship with. Mm. So when I look back on my family heritage, it gets thin pretty fast. I have a grandma. My grandma was married 
and divorced, I'm pretty sure more than once. My mom has been married and divorced more than once. My dad's mother and father, I don't even really know. Like, I think I've read about them. I may have met, I I met my father's mother once and that was all it took Hmm. for me to be like, I see why my father didn't stay with you kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So for me, legacy is all about what is the foundation that you're giving your children to continue to progress and achieve more than you did. The big thing that was lacking from my childhood was love and support. I was fighting for my mom's attention. She was fighting for the survival of her family. I don't, I, it's, that's a pretty low bar. So if I can just give my kids love and attention and give them an experience where we're not struggling to survive, that's step one. But I also know empirically they have to experience some level of trauma if they're going to be high achievers. So do I intentionally create whatever that trauma is or do I try to be there to help guide them through it as it happens because maybe it happens somewhere else Mm. or do I accept that my children might just not be high achievers? Brother, I'm holding my breath for the answer here. Like, don't leave us hanging. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I don't, I don't have it figured out. I know for a fact I want them to feel loved and I want them to feel supported. Mm. I oftentimes question whether or not they should be high achievers. Why do we value high achievers? I value high achievers because I believe myself to be a high achiever. I connect with other high achievers. Life is more enjoyable because I'm always trying to achieve something. But then I think about all the creatives out there. The vast majority of the creative people in the world are not actually high achievers. They're creators, right? The people who draw the comic books you and I love, the people who make the music you and I love, like somebody drives them. Somebody creates a schedule for them. Somebody creates a production schedule for them. Somebody forces them to go on tour. Somebody drives them and drives them. And that's why we see so many amazing artists turn to coping mechanisms like drug, alcohol, and everything else to try to get through the stress of their life. Perhaps they're not achievers on their own. They're just deep creators and they're happy to sit in a dark room somewhere. And if someone just brought them a sandwich every three hours or so, they would create amazing things. So I don't know. I think I have the closest thing to a solution on this. So one, I totally agree on the trauma thing. And this really is one of the reasons that my wife and I decided not to have kids because I knew they'd have to go through something hard. And I didn't know if I could watch Mm. my kids go through something hard without stepping in and solving the problem for them. So I thought I was going to be the ultimate, what do they call them? Tiger moms. (laughs) Like I thought that was going to be me. I'm just going to be helicoptering in there, solving every problem. I just, I wasn't sure. So um, the way that I approach this is through the lens of fulfillment. So I really believe that we are biological creatures Mm -hmm. and there are subroutines running in your pink matter, whether you want them to be or not. And a lot of it has to do with just the 50% of you that's hardwired. And it's become fashionable to act like we are blank slates. We are not blank slates. The brain works in a certain way. And this is why humans are laughably predictable. And because of that, I think everyone is pushed violently Mm. by the winds of evolution to pursue fulfillment, which I have a formula for a recipe is probably the right way to think about it. And the recipe is you have to work really hard. I can go into why, but you have to work really hard to attain a set of skills that allow you to serve not only yourself, but other people in a way that you find exciting. Mm. Like that's it. 
if you're doing that, then you will feel centered in your life. It doesn't mean that you won't go through grief. It doesn't right. mean that life won't get brutal at times, but it does mean that you have an orienting mechanism. In fact, I think it was you that said, in fact, what what is life about? What's the meaning of life? Yeah, it's all about self-respect. Perfect. Okay, so it definitely was you. Uh, <laughs> I've always told people, the only thing that matters is how you feel about yourself when you're by yourself. Self-respect. Yep. You have to do something that makes you think you are worthy of respect. No one can give it to you. You can't stare in the mirror and say, I love you, I love you, I love you. Mm-hmm. It won't work. Mm-hmm. You have to do something that you believe is worthy of respect. And part of that, I think, for people to respect themselves is they have to do something that they think is exciting, mm-hmm. but is also honorable mm-hmm. in that it helps not only themselves, but other people. And so if you do that, then you'll have this core thing that will see you through the tumult of the ups and downs of yeah. life, loss, love, all that good stuff. And the one trick in all of this is that you're going to be super driven, I think, to to feel good about yourself. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to have dominion over your own life, which means when you say you're going to do something, you do it. And that mm-hmm. takes an insane amount of discipline and drive. So through all of that, though, you're going to have to make a decision around what am I going to value myself for? So that idea of self-respect, you decide what you think is worthy of, your, of respect in yourself and other people. It is a decision. And it would be different from culture to culture. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a lot of similarities, but they will vary. Right. And in that, if people make the mistake of saying, I value myself for the achievement, you're dead. You're done. Your life is going to suck. You're screwed because there are going to be times where you nail it and you're going to feel good, but it will be so related to whether you got the outcome or not. It won't even be fun. And Mm -hmm. so you hear about all these gold medalists that are like, okay, first of all, it was a nightmare trying to win the gold medal. And then once I won it, like my life was completely empty. But if instead of making it about the outcome, you make it about the pursuit, all I value myself for, and this is really me talking, this is sincere. This is how I think about myself. All I value myself for is the sincere pursuit of my goals. Now, my goals need to be exciting and honorable, mm-hmm. as explained previously, but I may never achieve it. So I'm trying to build the next Disney. The odds of me succeeding are virtually zero, but I show up every day. I leave it all out on the field, man. And so if I fail, look, it will be a gut punch. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt, but I won't lose respect for myself based on whether I do it or don't do it. Because then it's like a thing that like is way off in the distance. I can't respect myself for the next 50 years while I try to do this. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. So tying your self-esteem to the sincere pursuit of something feels like the only way out of a death trap. That is an awesome... That's an awesome formula. It's an awesome formula because it takes the achievement factor out. That's what makes it so awesome. We are all conditioned, at least in American culture, Western culture. Mm. We are, if you're, if, if we're speaking English and you're listening to this in your native tongue, you have been preconditioned to believe that achievement is the ultimate goal. Mm. It's just how the Western mind works. Your formula makes it about working hard to achieve a set of skills that allows you to make a contribution that you find exciting. Achievement doesn't have to happen, right? And and won't quite frequently. Like yeah. you'll get wins hopefully along the way, but I, because I work with so many people that are trying to build businesses, I'm always telling them, look, the success is not guaranteed, yep. but the struggle is. This is going to be hard. 
no matter what you're trying to do. You're trying to be a, a piano teacher. Mm -hmm. You're trying to be, you're trying to build the next Microsoft. Doesn't matter. It's all going to be hard. Now the question becomes, will you love the struggle or not? Yeah. Because you may never achieve your goal. And even if you do, it's some amount down the road. And so if you're not loving the difficulty, you're gonna have a hard time. Yeah. And I remember my business partners, my former business partners and I, we used to ask a question that I think, it certainly caused me a lot of suffering, I won't speak for them. But the question was, what would we do if we knew we couldn't fail? And I remember that question was presented to me like it was the smartest thing in the world. And I just thought, mm, I don't think that's the right question because what I found was the success isn't guaranteed, but the struggle is. So I was like, what is the right question? And to me, the right question is, what would I do and love every day, even if I were failing? Because that I can guarantee, like there's gonna be mm. some ridiculously long stretch of time. A year can feel like a long time when you're taking shots to the face. Oh yeah. And in that year, what would you love doing even if it wasn't working out? And then do that thing, right? And so that has been an organizing principle of my life. So unfortunately I chased money for a decade, almost a decade, and that was miserable. And the irony of my life is I don't end up getting wealthy until I stop chasing money and I start chasing purpose. Now, business acumen is a huge part of my success story. So I don't want people to get delusional mm -hmm. that like, oh, it's some Pollyanna story. And once you just love other people, everything works out. No, right. but once you have another thing that's gonna keep you pushing when things get hard, now you've really got a shot. Um, but yeah, so many people orient themselves around I imagine myself standing on the podium, winning the award, getting the Academy yep. Award, making millions of dollars. And, and I'm going to feel at that moment the way I feel about the people that I look at when they win. But it's a very different experience to win the award, get the money, than it is to look at the person winning the award and getting the money. You know, I love that idea of embracing the struggle because the closest thing I have found to espionage, the closest thing I found to spy work is business. I knew you were going to say that. It's the closest thing out there. all the sense in the world to me. It's the closest thing out there. You have to get in the head of your client, just like you have to get in the head of your target. The, the constant experimentation, the constant shots to the face, the constant failure. We have something called a probability curve mm. that we use at the agency. And the probability curve is basically telling you that the most probable outcome is failure. 80% of the time you're going to fail. 20% of the time you're going to succeed. So you've got to be ready to fail eight times before your first success. And that doesn't mean it's going to be an exponential success. It's just not a failure. Right. Right. It might take 30, 40, 50 swings before you actually hit that home run. So what are you, what's going to keep you swinging? Mm. What's going to keep you swinging? Cause you're not going to get excited when you hit a base hit after eight swings. You're just not going to get excited about that, right? What's going to keep you coming back day after day after day? And in business, it's the same way. I've gotten to use all of the spy skills in business. I've gotten to meet amazing people in business. I've gotten to go to amazing places in business. And that's exactly what espionage is like. And I'm just in a, in a blessed position now where our business continues to succeed and continues to thrive. And we just double down on what we know works. Keep holding it, keep treating it like it's a spy operation and keep teaching people that business is the closest thing to spying because it works. We don't know. I, I can't say 
that I know why it works. I can only tell you what I know about espionage and why espionage works. And I'm seeing that the correlation exists in business as well. I have to imagine that it's because it's psychology. Business is entirely psychology. When you're writing a sales letter, email, Mm -hmm. Twitter post, whatever, it is you trying to understand what will be heard, not just what is said. And whether I'm interviewing somebody, whether I'm working with one of my employees, it, it really is a game of psychology. And so I more or less teach people how to be CEOs inside of what we call Impact Theory University. And uh, I did this high ticket thing for a while. We'll probably bring it back at some point. But the problem is the reason that I'll say maybe at some point, even though it was incredibly lucrative for us, it what people actually need, meaning what business really is, is not what they think it is. Yeah. And so the the marketing gap on that, I have not figured out how to get people to understand what, if you wanna be a successful entrepreneur, what you have to know how to do is make good decisions. Mm. And what people think they need is a great marketing funnel. And you do need that, yeah. but that's like down the road, right? And you do need good copywriting skills and you do need good sales skills. Uh, you need to make a good product for sure, for sure. But at the end of the day, you have to be able to solve novel problems. That's being an entrepreneur. And if you can't solve novel problems well, you're screwed. And there really is a way to think through these problems that follows a rubric that you really can teach people. And so I've now been in three different industries. The first, important for me to note, the first industry I started, which was in software, I started as an employee, but worked my way up to being a co-owner of the company. But then the next two were companies I started from fucking scratch. Mm. And so three companies in a row and three wildly divergent industries have built multi-million dollar companies. One, we sold for a billion dollars. So it's like, hey, this is teachable. It's repeatable. And it's all psychology. Mm -hmm. You have to understand your own psychology. You have to understand where you break down. You have to understand when you become little Tom, little Andy, little whatever. Like you've got to understand that. You've got to understand how, what is the problem that people are trying to solve? How do you show that you have the solution to that problem? And it better be real. Mm. Like the thing you created better actually work because if it doesn't, now you're gonna be in trouble. So that means you have to be able to see your own perspective. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to break it down so you're not lying to yourself so that you recognize what's working and not working. I I don't claim to have the answer here, but we have a similar problem in human intelligence operations. And, and this is, this is where I believe the, the public disdain for CIA comes from. Mm. CIA recruits us, another one of the lessons they tell us, is that they recruit us for something known as moral flexibility. That what, just sounds horrible. <laughs> it just sounds horrible. Yeah. It sounds like the book you recommended, right? Uh, a billion- A billion wicked thoughts. A billion oh wicked God, thoughts. That book is so good but, for anybody that and has a strong stomach. When you hear moral flexibility, you have the same reaction, right? Oh, that sounds horrible, but it sounds so good. Mm. So moral flexibility is essentially the idea that you can- move, you can shift your ethics and your morals around some other objective, right? If you don't have that, if you have strict morals and strict ethics, you're not going to do well in clandestine operations. You're just not. Mm. You have to have flexibility to say- It becomes your guidepost. Is it protecting Americans? Yes. It becomes, honestly, as, as again, this is where people don't like CIA. CIA's mission is American primacy. Mm. That's it. 
right? That's the goal. It goes I'm a all child the child of the 80s. I love American Prime. I love it the most. <laughs> I know that's so out of fashion right now. It is out of fashion. I think it's crazy. Everybody should want primacy for their own country. They absolutely like, should. And if you're an American, the fact that we have the freest country in the world, do we have problems? Yes. Are our problems anywhere like other countries' problems? No. Spoken by somebody who's been in other countries. It's nuts, man. It's incredible how people lose perspective. They never gain perspective. They're yeah. trapped in their own perception about how bad America is. Right. America's messed up. I'm not saying it's not. We're like, we're an adolescent country in the developmental stages of a country. We're just over 250 years old. Mm. I think we're just under 250 years old. We're freaking adolescents. We're teenagers. Of course, we're all fucked up, right? What teenager do you know that has it all figured out? We've got, we've got growing to do, but let's not negate the progress that we've made just because we're not where we want to be yet. Mm. Right. But either way, moral flexibility is this idea that you can change your personal ethics to fit a larger goal. Ours is American primacy. CIA believes and the, and the, the government of the United States believes that as long as America is the strongest country in the world, the world is a safer place to Americans. If you don't like the way that sounds, then you don't want to work in the government, mm -hmm. right? We're not worried about the security of Nigerians. We're not worried about the security of Australians. We're not worried about the freedom of human rights in, you know, Sri Lanka. That's not our first goal. It might be somewhere at like goal 75. Right. Goal number one, keep Americans safe, give Americans every opportunity to succeed in a world that's dominated by the United States. It's going to be dominated by somebody. It's going to be dominated by somebody. Exactly right. So this idea of moral flexibility is a big part of what CIA recruits us to do. They recruit us because we have moral flexibility to make that American primacy mission happen. And then they also teach us that when you are engaging with somebody, a target, and that target has potential value to the mission, sometimes you have to veer from your own ethics about dealing with people mm. to meet them where they are so that you can get into their private and secret life and guide them to where you need them to be. Did that mess with your head or do you find that easy? I found it thrilling. I wouldn't say I found it easy. Mm -hmm. It's a, there's a learning curve there, but it was absolutely thrilling. It's like you said, something you enjoy doing, right? Mm -hmm. Something that brings you excitement. Learning how to manage people, like manage them on, I say manage. We learned how to manipulate people. That's what CIA taught us how to do. We weren't making friends with these folks, right? right? You're finding the, the most powerful most uh, vulnerable people in the world who have access to secrets that keep Americans safe. That's not a big population. There's really only a small population that has that level of access, that level of secret access, right? You had to find them. You had to befriend them. You had to get into their secret life. You had to get them to commit their, their the safety of themselves and their family to you. And then eventually your real goal is to institutionalize them so that you can basically leave and a junior officer can step in to maintain that relationship. Do you reveal who you are at some point? Sometimes. Sometimes you reveal who you are. Sometimes it's better to leave what we call a fig leaf, where they think they know who you are, but they're never really sure. Mm. Because if they were sure, they might self-destruct. Right. Right. That's another thing, another predictable human thing. Human beings like to self-destruct. We feel- Like to self-destruct. We like to self-destruct. What? Yeah, we all carry this self-destruct button on our chest. It's what we say, right? A big red self-destruct button. So when we start to get ourselves into trouble, mm -hmm. 
you start to lie and then you tell compounding lies because you're trying to get yourself out of the situation that you got yourself into. Inevitably, you're going to land on a point where you're like, I just need to come clean. Whoa. That's something that we do, right? And then you've got the people out there who refuse to lie because they're so afraid of that moment that they only tell the truth. Yeah. Well, when you only tell the truth, guess what you do? Whoa. I'm, I'm evaluating myself internally like crazy right now. <laughs> so uh, keep going. So- so we're why do we like to self-destruct? We like to self-destruct because we in our in our brains, we create this low probability outcome where all will be forgiven and we'll be able to reset. What we don't like, people can reinvent. You can mm. always reinvent. You can never reset. Mm. There is no this isn't a freaking Nintendo, right? There's no hitting select or start and starting all over again. You just don't get to do that. You got to finish the game. And then you can restart, you can reinvent, you can recreate, but you can't go backwards. You can't reset. So true. We keep so thinking, it's, and we keep thinking that we can reset. We keep thinking that we can go back to the blank slate that you mm. already said never actually existed. We can't. We have to keep playing the game. You have to, you can retreat or you can advance, but you can't restart the war. Mm. You're in it. You're in it and you've only got one chance. You've only got one ride on this rock that circles in one direction, right? Time only goes one way until we find out how to do it otherwise. This is just where we are. You've got to accept that reality. You can't perceive something different. You have to accept the reality that you're going where you're going. Mm. Two things happen when you accept that reality. The first thing is that you learn that everything that's happened that you would that that you would think that your instinct tells you to just reset and start over reset and start over just whitewash it all reformat the disk and let's start over again so we like to self destruct because we are misinterpreting the moment right because we are telling Oof. ourselves a lie in our head right we're telling ourselves that it's better to start over than to start where we are wow it's never better to start over you are the you are a fantastic example because you accept it, you are the sum total of all of your experiences, good and bad. Mm. You are zero to seven, seven to 13, 13 to whatever age you are now. You are all of that sum of all of that experience and all of your learning. You, you use the mantra, don't forget who you are or remember who you are. Is that what you mm. say? Mm -hmm. Remember who I am. What you're really remembering is everything that brought you to where you are. You can't pick and choose. You can't reset it. That is what it is. And it's a fucking superpower but it's a superpower for everybody. It's a superpower for everybody. I'm nowhere near the financial success that you are. I'm nowhere near the achievement that you've achieved. I'm nowhere near the notoriety that you have. Nowhere near it. But you still invited me to come here. There's something I offer of value that made this conversation interesting and relevant to you. We all have that kind of power, what we call wasta. Wasta is the Arabic word for influence, right? We all have that kind of wasta. We just have to learn to lean into the wasta that we have and leverage it to achieve what we're trying to achieve, to build what we're trying to build. We can't just reset it and start over. Mm -hmm. We end, we spend so much time, people spend so much time bemoaning their background instead of leveraging it into something amazing, turning it into something productive, right? And, and what ends up happening is the reason espionage works, the reason business works is because human beings laughably predictable human beings are always 
unhappy. Edgar Allan Poe said people are never truly happy until they're unhappy. Because you're unhappy, as soon as something makes you happy, you start to worry about when that happiness is going to be taken away by something that makes you unhappy. So you can never actually reach happiness. Your 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 average person is happy as long as they're unhappy because that's when they're content. They believe, well, everything's everything's miserable. It can't really get worse than this. That's so weird. So when in espionage, you're looking for those people. You're you're always looking for the person who has access to secrets because once you find the few people who have access to secrets, there's a high probability they're miserable because everybody's fucking miserable. So then all you have to do is use the skills to get into this miserable person's secret life and make them think that you're doing it because you care about them as a person when in fact you just care about their access because what you really are after is American primacy. Mm. And then once you get that person to trust you because they bring you into your secret life, you just drain their secrets, feed it back to American legislators, and you prepare this person to be turned over to a new person that they never even let into their secret life in the first place. But now you vouch, what we call advocate, you advocate for this new person who's coming in, which means your trust and your credibility in their secret life is automatically carried on to the person that you introduce them to. They are now what we call institutionalized assets. Mm. They don't even realize that their loyalty is not to Tom and Andy. Their loyalty is to CIA mm. and they don't even realize it. All while keeping their hand off the self-destruct button. Be- and because you're keeping their hand off the self-destruct button because you know, remember how I was telling you, sometimes we leave them a fig leaf. Mm. I'm sorry. I'm just rolling here, man. I'm, if I'm cutting you off, interrupt me anytime. No, no, no. That's amazing. When a spy realizes, oh shit, I'm giving away secrets. What they think to themselves is, I need to go self-report. I need to go tell my boss. I need to go tell the police. I need to go tell something because if I'm caught, especially in the countries that we steal secrets from, Mm. if I'm caught, they're going to kill me. They're going to kill my wife. They're going to kill my kids. They're going to kill my parents. They're going to make us all a public spectacle to make sure that nobody ever does this again. So they're stuck between a true rock and a hard place because they think to themselves, if I self-admit what I'm doing, I might get killed. If I keep doing, if I, if I get caught doing what I'm doing, I might get killed. So the self-destruct button they have is to pull away from you, to like go into hiding and then potentially to leak it at some point in the future. So then you lose access to them immediately. Two years down the road, they still self-destruct. They still tell somebody, man, this one time I was talking to an American and I accidentally gave him like the codes to our nukes. And I realized that maybe I shouldn't trust him. And then somebody reports them anyways and families get killed. We have to protect them from their own natural instinct. So a big part of what, why we continue to meet with our assets is so that we can constantly cultivate and train them to resist that urge, Mm. right? There's no resetting. How do you get them to resist that urge? What you're doing is good. Yes. I care about you. Positive reinforcement. What you're doing, nobody spies. Nobody spies for the reason they think they spy. Mm. Just like you were saying, people don't want to know about business. The people don't want to learn what they need to learn. They want to learn what they want to learn. Mm. I'm totally massacre, massacring no, 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 your own quote. Right but people don't spy for the reasons they think they spy. People spy for what's known as a core motivation, right? We call it a core motivation. And there's only four core motivations. And they fall into a a uh, acronym that we call RICE, R-I-C-E. Rewards is a core motivator. 
Ideology is a core motivator. Coercion is a core motivator. And ego is a core motivator. There we go. Those are it. That's all you got. Wow. Every human being is driven in every decision by those four things. Oh, dude, I love these rubrics. These are fantastic. <laughs> so when you when you recruit somebody, when you when you create a spy, it's all based in one of those four areas. You just have to know which of those four areas is most relevant to that person. Mm. And you'll know which of those four areas based on what you know about their three stages of life. So this person is ideologically driven. This person is ego driven. This person is reward driven. This person won't do something unless you hold a gun to their face. You just know it, right? And then you test it over time. So when you, when you are managing and handling a human asset, they're a human being. They think that they're giving you secrets because you're their friend. They think that they're in some kind of trusting relationship. Now, maybe you're their friend who also pays them. Maybe you're their friend who, in, who encourages them to believe in the power of democracy and they're in a communist country. Who knows, right? So you're feeding them whatever their core motivation is. Mm. But you're also inside their secret life. So you've got the loyalty piece covered, the human response to loyalty, right? The human response to being in someone's secret life is that loyalty, that, that fealty. You've got that, but you're also feeding them on an incentive basis by hitting their core motivation. So those, that's the magic one-two punch. So that's how you keep someone resourced and charged so that they don't ever press the button that's waiting for them. That self-destruct button is always there. Just takes one bad day, one bad decision, one moment of weakness to press it. That's all you got to do is prevent people from doing that. Do they believe if they press that button that they'll get more lenient treatment? Yes. You believe that too, man. You've had that conversation in your own head where you're like, if I just come clean, if I just admit the truth, if I just share whatever, right, then it'll be less bad mm. than if I don't. There must be something true-ish about that. Do, do people actually, like, I'm, I'm trying to put this on the scale of like, they're going to kill my family, everyone I know and love. Like, that's so heavy, man. And it's humans heavy. can be gnarly in the extreme. Do they actually get letter treatment? Or is this like no. a fool's errand? It's a fool's errand. It's Oof. a fool. When you're in a place where that's the risk, you've got it. Like you have to look at everything through a lens of, of cultural norms, mm. right? In a country where it's a norm to make a public statement through the mass execution of a family line, which mm. is, that's a country where family name carries a lot of weight. Asian families, family names in Asia carry an incredible amount of weight. Japan, we were just talking, what is Japan all about? Mm. Honoring what? Ancestors. Everything. So to bring dishonor to the family name is such a heavy thing that the self-destruct button those people might press is execution, is just suicide. Whoa. You know what happens if your asset kills themselves? They stay secure but you lose a source of information. Mm. So you can't let that happen, right? There's lots of different versions of a self-destruct button. The trick is, the, the, the mission is to make sure that they never think that self-destruct is the best option. Mm. It's always an option. They always remember that it's an option, right? I certainly went through a phase in my life where I was thinking dark suicidal thoughts. Really? Many people do. At in in CIA in that in that 13 to 25 year old pubescent andy okay there was absolutely like dark nail polish 
like my, I don't like my stepdad. My mom doesn't pay attention. My sisters are the favorites. You know, mm. I was running into racial issues at school. Like there's all sorts of stuff there. And, and you certainly have those thoughts where you're like, what's the fucking point? Like, is this really worth, no one's even going to miss me. Mm. Right. Like the, the amount of people who have had those thoughts is, is surprisingly large. It doesn't mean we take action on it. Right. It's an option. Right. It's not really a reset. It's not, you're not starting all over again. You're just ending what you have. When people are thinking about smashing the self-destruct button, do, is it normally to confess or is it, do people kill themselves? It's normally to confess. Confession is, confession is, again, this makes me sound like a, just an incredibly horrible person. Confession is the worst of the two options from the point of view of an intelligence mm. officer. Because if someone confesses, then they're no longer providing access to information. But they're also potentially admitting that you were the one handling yeah. them. So now that brings a whole world of pain on you. Plus, if someone starts to investigate you, then how long before they start to take apart the network that supported you in that country or in the field, right? Now all of a sudden there's like secondary and tertiary levels of, of risk exposure. Mm. So confession is our worst case scenario. We would rather an asset self-destruct or just go dark. Go dark meaning they just shut themselves off from the world. And I mean, it's still scary if they shut themselves off from the world because you don't know who they're telling what yeah. to. But we can control suicide. We The blowback from suicide. We can't really control the blowback from somebody who confesses. Mm. Oof. Do agents, and I don't know if this is something that you can talk about, but when that happens, like the person goes dark, do agents like get me out of here? Like, is it extraction yeah. time? Usually it's extraction time is what we would call a non-emergency extraction. Um, an emergency extraction is like no shit. Black airplanes are going into the sky with boxes that have oxygen tanks and oh. you're like getting extracted, right? That's, we think that, that your threat to life or threat to survival is imminent so we need you out ASAP, right? We don't have time to tell Borders and Custom that you're mm. going to be leaving. We don't have time to tell anybody. We're, we're just getting you out. That's an emergency uh, exfil, exfiltration. When we have a non-emergency evacuation or a non-emergency exfiltration, then you can usually, you can go through the established lines. It's a race against the clock because the question becomes, can you get across the border faster than the person who went dark can turn themselves in, submit your name, and mm. the bureaucrat, the bureaucracy of the local police force can get your name to the border crossing agents, right? And sometimes, I mean, if someone goes dark, if if someone goes dark and you've in 12 hours or less, you can get yourself across the border, you're safe. Right. Sometimes it can be three days, sometimes it can be two weeks. And sometimes you're you're on a mission that's so sensitive that it's actually better to wait until you see signs that people are coming for you and then trigger the emergency exfil. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. 
The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Whoa. Right? So how? So let's say that moment happens. Um, do you have like booby traps or something that you set on the door? I mean, this is like straight up movie stuff. Are you like paper in the door? And if it falls out, you know, somebody has been in like, what signs do you look for that somebody's coming after you? Yeah. So, um, I'm going to stick to the unclassified version. Of course. Um, so generally speaking, when you think that you're under scrutiny, what we call scrutiny or advanced scrutiny, you are looking first for some sort of active surveillance, because the dude who lingers too long outside your apartment, if they're, if what, if they're what we would call a bumbling surveillance, then yes, <laughs> a bumbling and bumbling surveillance exists, right? Mm. There's, there's different levels of surveillance. So let's reverse engineer. You've got an asset. The asset knows that you are getting their secrets. Asset turns you in. Well, now the question for the local police force or the local intelligence service is, do we wrap up the person that we know is collecting secrets or do we observe the person who's collecting secrets to see who else are they collecting secrets from and who else are they meeting with to report their secrets to? Because now you have the opportunity to unfold an entire network. Mm. It's a very similar problem to what the police have. Do you take out one drug dealer or do you follow the drug dealer to find you know, the larger kingpin? Mm. So the first thing that we do when we suspect that we might be under scrutiny is amp up our situational awareness to observe whether or not we think we're being observed. So yes, bumbling surveillance would be a potential that you're being observed. Usually bumbling surveillance exists naturally. Like there are countries where you just being a tall, wealthy white guy, as soon as you walk into that country, there's going to be some bumbling person who's always like 17 feet behind you with a newspaper walking around, just keeping an eye on you, right? For any, for any number of reasons. We would expect to see more refined, sophisticated surveillance. So we would look for a team. We're trained to see teams of surveillance, foot surveillance, vehicle surveillance. Mm. We're trained to know when and how to look for closed uh, closed television, closed circuit TV, and or aerial drones. We know when we can spot them at the right time to confirm if they're after us, right? And if we see sophisticated surveillance, then we can trigger the next step. So that's one way that we would go about doing it. The mm-hmm. other thing we would look for is electronic signatures that were being electronically surveilled. There are certain signatures, there are certain behaviors that you can look for in your cell phone, in your computer, in your laptop, in your smart TV, you know, on your smart devices. There's certain things that you can keep an eye out for that, that demonstrate that you might be tapped or you might be under Are any of those unclassified that you can tell me about? Um, I'm pretty sure that it's unclassified to talk about um, gaps like uh, delays if you start to see performance delays in a device that is performing normally Mm. that's a good sign that it's being it's got an additional drag on its internal cpu or its internal memory i'm gonna be so paranoid now so if your smartwatch is always working and then all of a sudden your smartwatch has this delay Mm. it's not catching the right time it's not catching it's not connecting to the wi-fi it's got some kind of gap some sort of digital gap Mm. right that's usually a sign that something in the internal unit is draining it of its processing power. Mm. When a hack happens, when an information or a data hack 
happens, they're not usually very clean and they're not efficient. So they are very energy intensive. So for your watch or for your phone or for your smart TV to be sending your signal out to another location all the time, right, is going to constantly fill up. It's going to take all the demand on your RAM that's being carried in your smart device. Mm. So when you see that, it's an indicator. Does that mean you run and hide? Not necessarily. It's just an indicator. Oftentimes we find indicators as very comfortable things because if there's an indicator that we're being surveilled, then that means it's not an indicator that as soon as we step outside, we're going to get wrapped up into right. a van. Now we have time. Whoa. We have time to get off the X as long as we don't fucking melt down. Right. Right. So, and that's the big thing too. When you see surveillance on your smartwatch or surveillance on your smartphone, your TV starts to, your smart TV starts to jigger. And then you also see surveillance on the street. Guess what? Every fiber in your body wants you to do. Run. Run and hit that self-destruct button, mm. right? Just run. I'm out of here as fast as I can. Maybe if I get on a tuk-tuk and it takes me to a local airport and I pay some local pilot 300 US dollars, he'll just fly me to Cambodia. Maybe. No, it's not going to work that way. You're going to get intercepted 15 minutes after really? you start the run. Like the, the way the human brain can rationalize through a dangerous situation and come to the wrong conclusion, mm. it's incredible. What tools do you use to keep control of your mind? I can't fathom being a spy and having to manage my anxiety. Like that'd be nuts. No way. I would not excel at this. <laughs> so, I mean, anxiety is a challenge. Anxiety is a challenge, but I will also tell you that CIA recruits heavily for people that have anxiety. For people that have anxiety? People that have what? it. So what, what are some of the superpowers about having anxiety? You're paranoid all the time. Yeah. Huge yeah, advantage, God, dude. Damn, I worry that I would give myself away. So here's what's what the other nice thing about people with anxiety is that they have a very real idea of where their true limits are mm. because their true limits are tied oftentimes to their level of comfort. So you're like, I would never do these things. You can fathom espionage because we've been talking this whole time and you clearly have a very strong line of sight into how mm. it works, right? It's just psychology. You said it yourself. So absolutely, you can fathom it. So it's really just a question of whether or not you have the competency and the skills to execute it. Today, you might not. Well, guess what? We spend three, four, five weeks together, even doing just superficial training, and all of a sudden, you're going to be like, I think I could do this. Mm -hmm. Like, I've got anxiety, but I think I could do this. My wife is deployed all over the world. She is general anxiety disorder. Uh, uh, what's it called? When you're diagnosed, mm. and she has been medicated for her own anxiety disorders. Wow. She's operated all over the world, right? Because she learned the skills. Another lesson that I think is really important that, that the agency gives us. Yeah. And I apologize if I'm stepping on your toes in any no, way here. step away. People sell confidence, right? There's books out there about how to be confident. Mm. There's fucking TED Talks about, all you got to do is stand like this and right. you're going to be confident, right? Confidence is a perception, not a real thing. Confidence is how you perceive your own emotional reaction or your own emotional relationship with the environment around you. Confidence doesn't exist. It can't be measured. It can't be improved or, or, or reduced. Confidence is a non sequitur. It's an empty word. Mm. What we mean when we say confidence is competence. We want competence in what we're doing because the more competent you are, the more comfortable you are executing, mm. right? The more comfortable you are executing, the more comfortable you are taking risks, which is when you take a risk, 
It's called courage, right? So there's this relationship between confidence, competence, and courage that we just, because of all the unethical business owners out there, they just summarize it all as confidence and they try to sell you some course that tells you if you look in yourself, look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know, you're worth it, you're worth it, you deserve to succeed, somehow you're going to have more confidence. Or if you stand like this, you're going to have more confidence. Confidence is tied directly to competence. If you increase your knowledge in something, you increase your competence, you, in, you are able to give your uh, rational logic side of your brain, the left side of your brain, you're able to give it more accurate information from which it can use to process a probability matrix of your successful outcome, right? It's all about making good decisions. Another, another bill you quote, right? It's all about making good decisions. You make good decisions when you have superior information. You have superior information when you have superior competence. Mm -hmm. The more competent you are in a skill, the more courageous you are to take risks revolving around that skill. That's, that's all there is to it. So CIA can take anybody off the street, anybody, teach them the competence, mass, increase their competence in the right skills, and then deploy them to execute an operation. They have to be able to do that because the diversity of the targets that you need to talk to are as diverse as the gene pool in the United States. Mm. Sometimes you need somebody who is on the spectrum. Sometimes you need somebody who's on the a, a non neurotypical person to go out there and execute an operation. Hmm. So you have to be able to teach them the competent skills to go do it. Sometimes you need somebody who's handicapped. Sometimes you need somebody who's obese. Sometimes you need somebody who's old. Sometimes you need somebody who's like surprisingly young. You need all sorts of people because the, the individual who executes the operation is tailored to fit the operation because they need to get through the public life and the private life into the secret life as quickly as possible. Do you know what Stuxnet is? Yeah. Okay. So give people a quick primer in, in the context of that was the moment that I realized, oh, <laughs> there's a whole world happening mm -hmm. that I just didn't realize was real. I thought it was only in movies, but like this whole espionage game is it's, deep. Is deep. Yeah. So, and I would love to go more into that too, but so Stuxnet, quick primer, uh, Stuxnet was a, was a piece of code that was developed specifically to, uh, interact with what we knew at the time to be the software system running Iranian uranium enrichment, um, facilities. Yeah. There was a very uh, specific tool. It was reactor. The, um, no, uh, oh, it's going to come back to me here. The what is it when something the centrifuge the centrifuge word that's the I just word won whatever game we're Boom. playing. <laughs> so Stuxnet was a piece of code that was designed specifically to interact with the centrifuge that was used to enrich uranium in Iranian facilities. Mm. That's what it was designed to do. It was deployed, it was successful, and then the Iranian facility connected those centrifuges with the larger internet. And when that happened, Stuxnet carried out, continued to propagate Oof. out of the Iranian facility and into the entire digital universe. So depending on whose story you read, right now, essentially every digital device that's been connected to the internet at any point since like 2007 is infected with Stuxnet. That's crazy. But Stuxnet was so well designed that it only has a negative effect on the centrifuge operating system that was used by the Iranian uh, nuclear facility mm -hmm. at the time. 
So bananas. Okay, so how deep does a rabbit hole go? Like there's like a whole battle being fought. Ray Dalio talks about the five types of war. One of them is technological. Mm. Um, how deep is that war? The espionage war or the technological war? The espionage war. So let's let's start with the espionage war because this is this is a point that I love making that not everybody understands, right? 2016, the the election where Trump became president, mm. it became mainstream news that the Russians were suspected to be interfering with the election. And the world went crazy, right? The American people went bananas. Mm. FBI, Secret Service, Facebook had to change their algorithms. Twitter was on the chopping block for for contributing to Russian covert influence operations, right? You remember. Oh, yes. Why the hell do we think 2016 was the first time that happened? Mm. Why would we think that? Because we caught them in 2016? I mean, if we caught them in 2016, how many elections did they influence successfully before that where we never caught them. Mm. And that's just one country. What about China? What about France? What about Israel? What about Germany? What about Brazil? What about India? What, I mean, there's, there's as many countries out there. There's 160, what, 64, I think, countries right now. Every one of them has something to gain by influencing the outcome of the American election. Mm. Why would we think that nothing ever happened prior to 2016? Why would we think that the presidents we've elected, even in just yours and mine timeline, why do we think Bush was chosen by the American people? Why do we think Obama was chosen by the American people? Why do we think these people came to power of their own independent, uninfluenced, no foreign activity, hard work? It's probability-wise, it's extremely unprobable. Like it's, it's improbable that these people came to power and there wasn't also some country engaging in covert influence that was contributing to the outcome of the election. Jesus. That's how deep it goes. It's silly for us to think that just because we see it, that means that it started then. It's like mm. seeing a roach in your apartment, right? If you see a roach in your apartment, that's not the only roach. The walls are disgusting mm. with roaches, right? We saw it in 2016. That means it's been there for a long, long time. Our... Why do we think George Washington became the first president of the United States? Because he earned it and the American people voted for him? France was the reason we won the American Revolution. You don't think that had something to do with, you don't think France had a say in who became the leader of the new United States? Now, I'm not saying that all of our presidents have been given to us by foreign powers. That's right. not what I'm saying. But what it's I am- It's a part of the equation. It's a part of the equation. And you can't ignore that part of the equation. Right. So now we have our entire political system is constantly in some embroiled in some sort of battle with espionage. And that's just our political system. Our DOD, I don't know how much you keep up with espionage news. Um, Russia has penetrated the army's medical corps. Two army officers were arrested just three months ago. Whoa. Uh, recruited spies, recruited Whoa. by the Russians. Yeah. We've had nuclear nuclear naval engineers recruited by the Chinese who have also been arrested in the last three to four months. I heard about that one. Like we are heavily penetrated, heavily targeted, heavily penetrated by all the services mm. in the world. And there, there's a famous quote out there 
um, in the world of foreign policy that says there are no permanent friends or enemies, just permanent interests. Whoa, that's good. So why do we think anybody is a friend? Why do we think an ally is a friend? If you recall, there was a major issue. I think it was 2010, maybe 2011, where the German chancellor was notified that the American NSA was spying on the Germans. Whoa. We have had people go to jail from our Navy who were recruited and working as spies for the Israelis. What? Like this history tells you the story. It's just that nobody really spends time researching espionage history. So we have to understand how laughably predictable are human beings. We are so laughably predictable that we, you and I can predict that people aren't even aware that arrests are happening every few months. Mm of spies in the United States, in the military, in politics, right? In the Department of State, in the Department of Commerce, in the White House. Like, it's not surprising unless you let yourself be surprised, mm. which again, it's a predictable human thing to just, if we don't know about it, then it must not exist. And then it's also predictably human to assume that a friend is a friend there are no permanent friends, right? That's, there are people from my life, 13 to 25, that are not my friend anymore mm -hmm. because our interests diverged. And that's normal and that's natural. And it's also normal and natural to feel pain when it comes, when you outgrow somebody or when you have to leave somebody behind because your interests have diverged. And the saddest thing to me is the people who, when they feel that pain, when they feel that dissonance of leaving behind something from the past, they instead choose to give up on the ambition uh, and double down on the anchor. Yeah, getting trapped by, these are my friends, I don't wanna leave them behind, that's yep. crazy. I don't wanna um, get off this topic though. This is, um, never in a million years did I think that this kind of thing would interest me, but also never in a million years did I think that we'd be living through a transitional moment where mm. the US is a declining superpower against uh, a rising superpower in China. Um, that as of the recording of this, the BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa are making moves to create their own currency to amazing? stop trading in US dollar. Yep. So the dollar hegemony is, it's been under attack for a very, very, very long time. So I don't want to make this a headline that people panic about, but it certainly does feel like there's, there's a lot happening right now, um, that, is super unnerving and yeah. if it's got my attention <laughs> um which this is really something that i'm slow to react to but if it's got my attention i think that it's reaching a certain level now it could just be social media makes things like this visible to even me um but everybody i talk to ray dalio who i pay very very close attention to for people that don't know him he's runs ran he just recently sort of retired the largest hedge fund in the world so nobody's made more money off of being right about what's happening in geopolitics mm. than this guy uh and he He's like, yeah, we're we're at the four types. There's five types of war that I mentioned earlier. We're in four of them with China already. The only one we're not in is an actual hot war where people are shooting guns. What's your take on the global stability right now? Oof. So unfortunately, I would say that the the world, the globe, is fairly stable. The question is, what's the 
foundation of that stability. The foundation for the stability of the world for a long time has been the United States. Mm -hmm. We are seeing that transition, just like you said, right? It's, uh, it's that place where you, where you slide the pizza off the pizza pan and onto the cutting board, right? Who we've been the pizza pan for a long time and now it's sliding to someone else. The pizza is still very stable, but what's the platform? What's the foundation? I am always optimistic that the United States will recover. It will change its ways. We'll find a way to reunify the incredible by like the incredible polarity that we're in right now and get focused on the one true goal, American primacy. Mm. Do you think that's possible in a world where I know, you know, just saying American primacy, it like puts you at risk of being canceled. Like people just there, there is a contingent. I won't even say how big it is, but they're fucking loud. There is a contingent of people, and it could be large, that just, that's offensive. I understand it. I, I, I do. I understand it. And that's, that's okay. I, I hope that doesn't happen on your show, right? Um, you'll but get it, some of it, to be sure. <laughs> no, I'm not worried about it happening to me. I just hope mm. nobody cancels your show. Um, but, uh, rich for that. <laughs> but the truth is, um, um, American survival is not being threatened. We don't have an existential threat to the United States. Existential threats are the threats that make people move. We talk about existential threats. More likely, other countries talk about existential threats. And an exi what is an existential threat? A true existential threat is a threat that challenges your very existence. The existence of the United States is is contingent upon the existence of the United States government, not Americans. Like we sometimes think that Americans make the United States. Mm. The United States is a, is a representative Republic government that has never existed before that now exists. So if that government falls or if that government cracks or breaks, all the people will still be here. Right. But America will be gone. So the existential threat to the United States is the one that would trigger Americans to react. Now we've come close to those moments. 9-11 is one of those times. When all Americans- That felt awesome for a hot minute. It felt so good. The unity, like, yeah. Yeah, all of a sudden, all of our differences melted away, right? The same thing happened at Pearl Harbor. Mm. All of our differences melted away because we had a common enemy. And we could individually see the existential threat posed to our country yeah. and our livelihood. Since 9-11, we have not had that kind of a threat. Countries around us have woken up to the fact, just like uh, Emperor uh, Hirohito in World War II said, I fear we have woke a sleeping dragon. Our enemies have learned that Americans are slow to react, but when they react, they react in full force. Mm. There's no way a savvy, intelligent superpower competitor, GPC, global power competitor, is going to trigger an existential threat to the United States because they know that as long as they basically let us uh, segment ourselves separately, as long as we insulate ourselves separately, we're going to eat ourselves to death with our own stupid little mm. bitter squabbles about American primacy, yeah. right? Or about woke culture or about representation or about who knows what. We're going to, we're going to just, 
waste our time bickering in our little room and we're not going to wake up to what's happening in the entire building. That's the strategy of the future. That's is to keep us divided. It's not to keep it's a an influence campaign is always cheaper, easier and more and has a higher probability of success than a military campaign. Mm. So an influence campaign is basically like, "Hey, don't forget that you have race issues. Hey, don't forget that there's a socioeconomic divide. Hey, don't forget that the South tried to secede from the Union one. Like, mm. like just, they're just picking. They're just poking and throwing salt on a wound. And then we are fighting over it, right? And we fill our days worrying about this garbage, blind to what's happening on the larger scale. Blind to the fact that uh, the fantastic example is the global war on terrorism. The United States led the global war on terrorism following 9-11, right? And it felt good for a hot minute, like you said. We were all on the same page and we were all in this fight. And then that fight lasted 10 years and then that fight lasted 20 years. Also, it became so dodgy. Like what we were, like if we had just been relentless about Osama bin Laden, that's like when thing. I heard how we caught him in like the size of a shadow, I don't know if that's true, but like it sounded dope and i was just like dude we're ninjas this is amazing yeah but that was after like a lot of and look i'm i'm not super engaged in this stuff so i'm definitely popping off ignorantly but it did not feel good as a casual observer where we ended up going and how we ended up fighting and all that and it just seemed like wait what are we doing right so that felt like a squandered opportunity well during those 20 years while we were mastering the art of hunting terrorism hunting terrorists in mountains in pakistan and afghanistan what were our global power competitors doing? Was Russia engaged in the global war on terror? Mm. Was China involved in the global war on terror? So all the hundreds of billions of dollars that we spent in that war, we spent in a war that was a giant distraction for us that gave our closest near peer competitors 20 years to invest their money and grow to become a larger threat than we were even aware they were becoming. Right. And then China, all of a sudden China has multiple aircraft carriers and they're launching aircraft from aircraft carriers and they can project power into the South Asian seas. That's insane. Right. All of a sudden, like the, the, the Russian Federation is in close relationships with the Chinese and the Syrians and the North Koreans and the Iranians. How do we just wake up to this? Right? And that's, that's what happens. It happens because we are still an adolescent country. So we get very myopic and we become very focused on the thing that we're playing with right now. Mm. And we lose the larger sight, the larger vision. The, the world has watched us do this for too long and they don't make the same mistake twice, especially not authoritarian countries because authoritarian countries have the benefit of authoritarian rulers that sit in an office or sit in a place in a chair for 15, 20, 30 years right? They don't deal with the kind of tumult and transition that we have in the United States. I believe our constant change of leadership is part of what makes us strong, but we haven't yet learned how to have a change in leadership without a change in focus. That's what we haven't quite learned to do yet. So we're giving our authoritarian enemies an opportunity to have focus for a long period of time mm -hmm. against us while we don't have that against them. Okay, so why why were we able to be so strong? And now we're not. Before you even answer that question, let me frame it for people. And if I go wrong on any of this, let me know. 
But this, this to me is, goes back to what I did not expect to be the theme of this conversation, but how hilariously predictable humans are. So Ray Dalio takes a very economic view of the world and he's like, oh, hey, by the way, what he calls the big cycle is so predictable that he broke it down into six phases and every empire has gone through these six phases. They last for roughly like 100 to 150 years. America's basically at the end of the 100-year cycle. Um, and phase six is total collapse, mm. war, basically. And the old world order falls apart. There is usually a violent war, and then a new world order is established. And we're like clockwork on the cycle from a money perspective from a division perspective like everything just lines up so you have to have an internal populace that is divided mm. uh you need to get yourself over your skis from a debt perspective which we've done you have to start printing money like crazy and there has to be a new superpower on the rise like it's the yeah. the stage is set and the stage was set in world war ii which is how we became the mm. dominant power to your point about waking a sleeping dragon, sleeping dragon woke up, but now uh, we're in trouble. So that's my overly simplistic view of why this worked. It was sort of a fluke, uh, not a fluke, but it was, we we hit the cycle at just the right moment when the British empire collapsed at the end of World War II. Um, because of our geography, we weren't destroyed by bombs. So we come out of the war pretty much unscathed. So we ramp up all of our production capabilities. We absolutely um, crush it. We help win. We create the nuclear bomb. Like yeah. just a lot of things come together. And so then we're established as the world reserve currency. Um, because it's not like we weren't divided before then. But we got to really enjoy uh, a hot minute of prosperity. Mm. Does that seem like the right breakdown of why we could overcome our differences previously and now we can't? Like, how do you? Yeah, I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's wrong at all. I think that it's interesting to me because it sounds like Ray Dalio, uh, one of the reasons you respect him so much is because his analysis is based in economics. And he's put his money where his mouth is. Economics and economists have long been viewed as the true predictors of future prosperity. At CIA, we lean heavily into economic studies. Economic experts, economic analysis, the, the law of economics, because the law of economics is that of the law of scarcity. One of the first and most underrated economists out there was actually a Soviet economist, a guy named Kondratiev. Kondratiev created what's known as the Kondratiev wave, the Kondratiev cycle. That cycle essentially puts us, uh, it explains the pattern of uh, interstate conflict or intrastate conflict where, where countries compete, actually go to war with each other. And it, and it puts it on about a 25-year cycle. 25 years to a peak in conflict, 25 years to a, a, a drop in conflict. And then as the wave continues, like most waves, the actual uh, peak of the waves expands. So it goes from being 25 years to 25 years to then 32 years to 32 years. Hmm. And you start to see this longer, slower wave, right? But it's still a wave, uh, it's still a wave form. The next peak of conflict, according to Kondratiev's wave, against the United States's point of view, happens in about 2024, 2025. Oh, great. So we now have multiple economists basically saying that there's a peak coming, a peak of conflict coming. 
And that conflict for the Kondratiev wave is a peak of popular conflict and unpopular conflict. So we're coming off of an unpopular conflict, right? Afghanistan and, and Iraq largely turned into an unpopular conflict at the mm. end, right? And the wave between when that started and when the next wave is coming is right in that 25 year mark, right? So according to Kondratiev, we are very, we are not only coming up on a period of conflict, but it will be popular inside the United States. Mm. So people will rally behind that conflict. That doesn't mean we're going to win. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be in our best interest, but it does mean to your point earlier that we might see that moment where everybody kind of comes together again. Mm. I think part of the reason that we were able to be successful was because of the same rules of economics that you laid out from world war II. Our country hugely unpopular. Western expansion was hugely unpopular at the time. The Civil War, nobody wants to see the Civil War again. Most people would say the Civil War was a traumatic and horrible, you know, loss of life. At the time, there was no other option. Abraham Lincoln had no option except to pursue Civil War because he knew that the presidents before him had been working to create a single solitary nation that had national security from coast to coast. We can say it was a fight for states' rights. We can say it was a fight for slavery. We can say it was a fight for lots of things. And those are also true, but they may not be the number one reason why the, why the Civil War was so important. The Civil War was so important because we needed to remain one unified country from coast to coast to have American primacy in the long run. Mm. American primacy is a concept that was created by Alexander Hamilton. Really? American primacy is not new. Mm. There's an entire society out there called the Alexander Hamilton Society that's focused on, pres on preserving the ideals of Alexander Hamilton and the founding fathers who all believed that a strong United States meant a strong world because they saw and lived through the oppression of living under a monarchy, mm. right? If you look at the top five wealthiest countries in the world right now, the top five wealthiest countries in the world, two of them are democracies. The other three are monarchies, mm. right? So the idea that democracy is the solution to all wealth and success hasn't really been proven yet. We're still outnumbered by monarchies, right? So what does the future hold? The future will be, will be conflict is coming. Multiple economists have pointed to it. You can see the writing on the wall, what my wife and I call the writing on the wall. Conflict is coming. What will that conflict look like is the bigger question. You talked earlier about how, you know, you and I might be of the same ilk when it comes to, are we already engaged in World War III? Is World War III coming up? What will that World War look like? Mm. There is conflict coming. There's no reason for us to think it will look like it looked in World War II. If anything, conflict has proven to us that it evolves and changes just like technology and just like human thinking, right? But it's still predictable because it takes human beings to wage war. I don't think I'm answering your question very well here, but these are all, this is I mean, where my brain goes. Stage. So my question is, do you see this uh, as a, a conflict with China? Does it become open warfare? Is this going to be over Taiwan? Like, or the Russia-Ukraine thing spills mm -hmm. over into something? How do you see this playing out? So my honest, my honest anticipation, what I expect will happen is that China will make a legal move on Taiwan. What China did in Hong Kong was legal first. They changed the laws in Hong Kong. They changed the laws in China, which then changed the laws in Hong Kong, which made it legal for them to go in and, and take Hong Kong by force. In 2019, right before COVID hit, the whole world watched and it happened. Mm. 
And the whole world complained and threw a fit and leveraged sanctions and said it was unfair and unjust and everything else. And then the Chinese did it anyways. And now here it is 2023 and most people don't even remember what happened in Hong Kong just four years ago. Mm. Now they're watching what's happening in Ukraine. Now in Ukraine, some people say that what happened in Ukraine is that the world rallied behind Ukraine by giving them weapons and giving them training and giving them resources. The most limited resource in Ukraine is Ukrainian soldiers. It's not tanks or guns or howitzers. The thing that will run out first is Ukrainian fighters. That's like, it's been, it's a shame to me to watch what's happening because the Ukrainian fighting force is putting up such a valiant fight. They're doing everything they possibly can to equip every warfighter to be worth 10, 20, 30, 50 Russian fighters, right? But that's their most limited resource. They're not going to be able to create more Russian fighters in the next three to five years. You just can't, you can't turn a five-year-old into an 18-year-old. So the, that's the resource. That's the, the clock that Zelensky knows he's fighting against, that he's racing against, is not a clock of fighter jets or, or missile defense systems. It's how am I going to find enough fighters? And NATO and the West know that they don't want to put their boots in Ukraine fighting the Russians because that's all it would take for the Russians to basically say, hey, NATO allies are killing Russians. So now Russia can kill NATO allies. Mm. And because Russia is a nuclear power, they essentially have the same pawn, like the same trump card that we had in World War II. So nobody in NATO wants to mess with that trump card. Because when you have an animal cornered, yeah. it does amazing things, right? So what I see happening is China will make a legal move on Taiwan. What legal play do they have with Taiwan though? They, they have a number of legal plays. First of all, do you know what the American, official American stance is on Taiwan? It's something like, um, we're, we're not going to do anything, but don't like touch them. It's so like bizarrely vague. Yeah, it's called the One China, Two Systems Policy. Essentially, in the eyes of American policy, Taiwan already belongs to China. Interesting. So then China also has acknowledged with Taiwan, you have your own system, but you're still part of the mother country. This is Hong Kong 2.0. Hong Kong 2.0. And over the stretch of like, what is it, 80 miles from coast to coast between, yeah. between southeastern China and Taiwan. So it's, it's sticky, man. If China makes a legislative move that basically forces the Taiwanese system to then say, you are now communist, right? They could have the legal foundation to do that. And then a legal attack is very similar to what they did in Hong Kong. That goes to court systems. That doesn't go to bullets, right? And then when the legal system starts to go in their best interest or in their favor, now China has legal grounds to basically have Chinese uh, police officers mm -hmm. enforce Chinese law inside Taiwan. This whole process, what the hell is the United States going to do? There's no missiles. There's no guns. You can drive through the straits all you want. It's a legal issue. It's not a mm. military issue. So I anticipate China making a legal move on Taiwan that will be supported by key members in the UN. Why? Because how many of the BRICs are in the, the, the leading countries in the UN? All of them, right? If you look at the Ukrainian conflict now... It, the news media oversimplifies everything. So media says that the UN passes resolutions that condemn Russia. That's true. And the, U and the UN passes resolutions with a large majority, 140 countries, you know, condemn Russia. That is also true. What they're not telling you 
is that the countries who are not condemning Russia are the largest, wealthiest countries in the UN. Mm. China is not condemning Russia. South Africa is not condemning Russia. India is not condemning Russia, right? Even inside NATO, you have Belgium and Hungary who are not condemning Russia. Really? So even NATO is not unified on this. Whoa. Right? China's seeing all of this. And China's seeing it for what it really is, not for what American media is telling the American mm. people it is. And the American media isn't, they're not trying to, you know, they're not trying to lead us astray. They're just trying to run a business. They're trying to get people to read their newspaper, click their links, see their ads so that they can have, they can pay their employees the next pay cycle. It's all media is trying to do. It's yeah. not, they're not trying to lead us down the wrong path. So once there's an administrative takeover in Taiwan, China has all the rules that it, like all the cover it needs to basically just shipping, to start shipping National Guard troops, uh, police officers, even military units over to Taiwan. And now Taiwan belongs to China in a bloodless war, very similar mm. to the bloodless coups that we've seen multiple times in places like Thailand or all over Southeast Asia, right? That's how I see it happening. And I see it largely happening in the lead up to the 2024 election because China is going to benefit from a very confused American base. Will be peak division. During peak division in an electoral cycle. Wow. That's so distressing because that feels very plausible. Mm. Uh, okay. So we have a lot of business interests there. So what will our reaction be? Cause my first thought was our reaction will be, oh, maybe that's the best way for this to happen. We can be like, ah, we don't have to go and commit our American lives to it. Uh, they did it just like Taiwan or sorry, just like Hong Kong where we'll, you know, rant and rave and mm -hmm. say, this is a problem and how dare you and sanctions. Yep but ultimately be glad that we're not sending people to die. But do we have enough business interests there that especially in, in, you know, sensitive areas like chip manufacturing where we can't let it go. Our business interests with China are significantly bigger than our business interests with Taiwan. Wow. Taiwan has the market cornered on semiconductors, hmm. but that's not just for the United States. They have the market. They have like 98% of the market share Damn. in semiconductor manufacturing. Who designs the semiconductors? We do. Mm. We have all the IP. They just have the plants. That's why one of the big initiatives in Biden's CHIP Act is to actually bring uh, T TSMC, TMSC, I forget sure. the name of the country, or no I forget idea. the name of the company, the main manufacturer in Taiwan, to actually bring them to the United States. Mm. So they're trying to build manufacturing plants for the Taiwanese company here in the flyover states in the United States so that we can just bring that tool. God, this is going to be a fascinating stateside. 10 to 20 year period. Absolutely. You just nailed it right there. It is going to be a fascinating decade to two decades in the future. So that's what I want to focus on. That's what I encourage my clients to focus on. It's not about what happens now or in the next two years. Mm. It's about what are you going to do so that your family, your business your financial legacy, your individual legacy is safeguarded for what the world could look like 10 to 20 years from now. Mm. The, the world could look like the United States is still the economic and military superpower. It could look like that. So you may not have to change much. But according to economists, by 2033, China will be the economic superpower. That's not far away. If we print money like crazy then we could not go to zero, but like every other superpower before us, you, you really get knocked for six. It is not a minor thing that happens. Right. 
And then you lose your ability to print your way out of things, which then you go into austerity. Now you look like England post-World War II, which, hey, England's amazing, Mm. but they definitely had some rough years and they're certainly not the global superpower that we are now. But I've sort of always imagined us falling into the number two position where we still maintain some real might, uh, that we have massive influence in other parts of the world, that there will almost certainly be parts like Europe, and look, they're an economic mess, but parts like Europe that are going to be far more aligned, most likely, certainly culturally, with America than they would be with China. And so you get sort of a more like Cold War-y vibe where America's, Russia was a huge player. For anybody that's too young to remember, Russia was a beast when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Now, we didn't know that it was a bit of a paper tiger, but like they really, uh, they mattered on the global stage and I imagine will still matter. I think you're asking yourself the right questions, right? What, knowing that humans are laughably predictable, if China becomes the next global superpower, what is the laughably predictable thing that would happen next, Mm. right? The most predictable outcome is that China would take the number one spot. We would fall to the number two spot. Who's always everyone's target? The guy in the lead. Mm. So right now, the world is unified that the United States is enemy number one. Even if there are allies, we're still enemy number one. You think NATO likes the United States? Mm. No. France and Germany have both come out to say that they don't want the United States in NATO anymore. What? Absolutely. The chancellor of Germany has said he wants Germany to have the largest army in Europe, specifically so that they can't be bossed around anymore by the United States because everybody's oh. over-dependent on the United States military. Huh. Right? The president of France, early in the invasion with Ukraine, shut Biden down and said, you are actually, you are exacerbating this conflict with the rhetoric that you're spitting in Poland and the United Mm. States, when you don't even have, the United States isn't even within the firing range of Russia, right? right? So France and Germany have had something to say. Hmm. Biden has been so successful with his policy in in Poland because Poland has long had history uh, against Russia. So it's a natural, like it's a natural way in. Poland Mm. already hates Russia. And Poland will take any help it can get from anybody in NATO. And so the United States comes in and says, hey, we'll help you, Poland. We'll back you up. And Poland backs the United States up. But Canada and France and Russia and Germany and the UK, they have a very different story there. Well, we we have to talk about France. So I was scandalized in my research (laughs) to hear you say that when you think about like the most hardcore uh, intelligence agencies that France, of all places, is like brutal. The DSGE, DGSE. DGSE, yep. Uh, What's their shtick? Why France? So there's a couple reasons why France. Um, So one of the biggest reasons why France is because in the late 90s, the United States CIA was caught spying on the French government. Mm. Just like in the early 2010s, we were caught caught spying on the German government, right? Mm. Unlike Germany... France holds a grudge. So is France not spying on us? Of course they are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course they are. So, but it's like we got caught and so now they get to be mad? No, it's more like something changed. Prior to the 90s, Mm. prior to the late 90s, France wasn't so interested in the United States. They were interested in more direct threats to France. Well, now in the late 90s, there's this giant flap inside France and now France is like, fuck the Americans, Mm. right? 
So they start to dedicate resources to building up an intelligence service and a skill set that makes sure that they will never be penetrated by the Americans again, right? The DGSE becomes one of the, and still remains, one of the best funded, most technically capable intelligence services in the world. Why does, French ha- why does France have enough money to put all of their resources into their intelligence operations? Because guess what they don't have to worry about? military industrial complex Mm. because they're part of NATO and the United States wants to keep sending weapons and troops into the European countries. Mm. So the United States has basically bought its influence in NATO by forcing Europe to prioritize or giving Europe the opportunity to prioritize their economic growth in other avenues besides military industrial development. Mm. That's why most of the militaries in Europe are very weak and very small. Now, there are some that are modernized, which is why everybody's so excited about Sweden and Finland coming into NATO, but most other countries are outdated and underfunded. Hmm. They don't need to be funded because if something happens in Poland, Article 5 of the NATO alliance means that the United States military is going to come save the day. So they're okay with that. And of course, the United States is okay with that too, because it means there's never going to be a military competitor in northern, in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Hmm. As a result, what does get to happen is those countries can take all the money that they would spend on military defense and, ch- and channel it into intelligence operations. Now, when they channel it into intelligence operations against China, North Korea, Iran, terrorism, they share that information back and forth with the United States selectively, and they build that alliance. But they also spend those resources spying against the United States. And, so funny. And because France specifically is so well-funded, and holds a grudge, and is so adept specifically at targeting Americans, they have made a huge impact in the space of economic and industrial espionage against the United States. There, there are, if you talk to an intelligence professional, like I'm sure you have friends in your network, and you're like, hey, is France really that big a deal? You will hear the same thing over and over again. Fuck France. Wow. You will hear those two words from every intelligence professional out there because we have all been bested at some point in time by the DGSE. Hmm. They either stumbled into one of our cases, they false flagged and pretended to be CIA and recruited an asset from underneath us or who knows what, right? But they know how to target Americans. Whoa. And nobody knows they even exist. It's the perfect kind of clandestine operation. Nobody even knows Hmm. the threat is there. The way that information warfare works, leveraging the human animal against itself, I am waking up to a reality that I've been so focused in my life on my businesses and my loves and passions and my wife, oh my God, that I just, I've totally, I'm totally blind all this. And that I have an outdated vision. Like I think of France from the 80s and 90s yep. when I was a kid. And like, we all made an fun ally. of them. They yeah, put their hands up. Exactly. They don't even fight back. A hundred percent. And so my vision, I'm sure, on a lot of these countries is really skewed in terms of what they actually think about us. Because I remember um, there was a lot of that grumbling when the World Trade Center first, not not 9-11, but in the 90s? Yeah, when, uh, when they first bombed it, where it was like, uh, there are people in the world that hate Americans. I was like, say what? <laughs> like, I had <laughs> completely, you know, my own sort of insulated vision of America and just we export culture and America's so great. And who wouldn't love democracy? The, yeah. That was the first time where I was like, whoa, wait a second. Like, people don't actually want this. And that is so in recent years, I've been reading a lot about um, totalitarian states. 
uh, communism and like what that really looks like in practice. And it gets real scary real fast. And so looking at Mao's China, which mm-hmm. is like the anybody that wants to have their brain absolutely melted, there are three books that I recommend that you read where you can see just how terrifying humans can be. And that is Mao, The Unknown Story, The Untold Story. I can never remember the exact, but that. Uh, the Gulag Archipelago mm. about the Gulag system in Russia. And then The Red Famine, which is about uh, the Ukrainian famine. Uh, those three books will show you that the depths of human evil, like I don't know how to say like it, that's really, really unbelievable, like what went down. And then when I was thinking about China and it's like, but ultimately like that is born of the people, yeah. like that, that is the, the natural outcropping. Now look, it may come and go and maybe it's just born of the people right now in this moment. And maybe that, you know, won't last, but who like it, it is the system that they don't overthrow. That would be the right way to say it because they could, yeah. At any moment, like if the people really don't want it, they could overthrow it and they don't. And so that was the eye-opening where I was like, oh, wow. Like the rest of the world does not think of democracy, just to keep it simple, the way that I do. Yeah. And honestly, now I'm beginning to wonder if even kids growing up now think of democracy the way that I do. And if um, demographics are destiny, I get a little unnerved mm. because I'm... Man, I don't, I, I am in the process of formulating my opinion about this. So a lot of what I have is emotion. So going back to your early things that we are emotional creatures and the way that we feel determines what we see. Um, a lot of the emotion that I have that I have not solidified into an updated worldview is I'm very unnerved by the amount of division in the country. And I don't see Knowing what I know about humans, I don't see how we get back on to coming together without massive suffering. Now, with enough suffering, we will, but I don't see how we'll come back together without just a tremendous amount of suffering. I, I wish I could disagree with you, but I, I agree with you. I, not only would it take a tremendous amount of suffering for us to reunite, but our biggest threats right now are also aware that as mm. long as we don't suffer, we're not really going to unite. So they can just execute. As long as they can execute cleanly on a consistent vision, they will. Mm. Because you know what we cannot do? We cannot execute cleanly on a consistent vision. Yeah. And we, we, I believe in the American experiment. And I believe that the world is safer with the United States being the global superpower. But I also think that the world has the world hasn't come to that conclusion on its own. So maybe what we need is a different global superpower for a while before the world is like, you know what? Maybe we don't like this. Right? Maybe we want to return Oof. to another system. God, I hope it doesn't come to that. I hope it doesn't come to that either because I won't you and I won't be here for that. My kids will be. Mm. Right? My grandkids will be the ones going through that transition. And that's not going to be a pretty transition. And who knows? It's the the thing is that again, knowing how people work, we are hardwired. Human beings are wired to survive. Mm. We are not wired to thrive. 
We are wired to survive. Ouch. Ouch. Yeah. The human brain, the whole, the processing that goes between the amygdala and the sensory codex and all the different parts of your left and right brain that help you reach conclusions, they were all built and they have all evolved around the idea of individual survival. Mm. So whatever happens, human beings will survive, will adapt and will survive. We might suffer along the way, but Buddhism says suffering is part of the experience, right? So to avoid suffering is almost contrary to the, to, to the faith-based, the dominant faith-based mm-hmm. uh, religions in the world, right? Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, they all agree suffering is unavoidable. But human beings still find a way to persevere. I would love to not have that happen, but if I was in charge of any country that didn't want the United States to be the new global superpower. I would just let the United States continue to pick at its toenails like it does right now, Mm. right? We're the fat dude in the corner picking at our hangnail while the rest of the world is working out, exercising, getting smart, and getting ready to go to to war, right? On that uplifting note... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Andrew, this was amazing. And if we weren't out of time, I would keep going and going and going. I have thoroughly enjoyed this. Where can people keep up with you? Uh, I've had a blast here, Tom, too. You can find me anytime at my website, everydayspy.com. If you go there, it'll have links to everything else. I love it the most. Everybody, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.